Lord has given me a gift. Only one. I am the most complete fighter in the world. Hello and welcome back to Adkins Undisputed, the most complete Scott Adkins podcast in the world. I'm your host, Mike Scott, on this journey through the career of one of the most exciting action stars of all time. This week, we are getting to a movie that I know so many of you have been anticipating. The thing that turned so many of you, myself included, into Scott Adkins fans and really announced his presence to the world. I am, of course, talking about Adkins' multi-episode role on Mile High. Wait, wait, checks notes. That's right, it's actually Undisputed 2, Last Man Standing. That's right, this week we dive deep into the 2006 Isaac Florentine-directed DTV sequel starring Michael Jai White and Adkins. To help me out with that, I'm bringing on this week's champion, the stellarly cool A.J. Muller, an action aficionado par excellence. I am also going to be diving into Mile High as promised, as well as Scott's brief appearance in The Pink Panther. I thought about dedicating an entire episode to Pink Panther, but Scott's role is so brief, and since the film is a straight comedy, it just doesn't really fit in with the themes of this podcast. If you all really want a full episode on Pink Panther, let me know. As always, Scott will be joining me to talk about his time making Undisputed 2, as well as Mile High, Hollyoaks Let Loose, and Pink Panther. We have some great discussions about how he developed his accent for Boyka and working with the great alpha stunt Bulgaria. I'm also going to spend a little time talking about the original Undisputed and the career of Walter Hill. Before we get to Undisputed, let's catch up with Scott in his career. He's finished filming Unleashed in Pit Fighter and his return to England finds him cast in the final season of Mile High. Mile High was a British drama originally airing on Sky One from 2003 to 2005. It follows the lives and loves of flight attendants for a fictional budget airline named Fresh. For those in the U.S., think Allegiant. The cast is led by Naomi Ryan and Adam Sinclair with a rotating cast in each season. Fun fact, Adkins' Doctors co-star Sarah Manners was one of the leads for the first season, but she had left the show by the time Adkins was cast, so we were deprived of our Doctor's re-team. Adkins joins the series as Ed Russell, a flight attendant who also moonlights as a male stripper, and yes, he does get a Magic Mike-style stripping scene for those interested. Check my Twitter for gifts. I've always promised I would be honest with you all, and that's not gonna change. Mile High was a slog for me. A more reprehensible cast of characters I have not seen in a show for quite some time. It's clear the producers wanted us to find the characters quirky and endearing in their flaws, but I found them just unlikable and off-putting. And if the show is at all an accurate representation of flight attendants, then I hate flying even more than I already do. Always assume your flight attendants are transporting drugs, flying high, or drunk, and generally just putting everyone's lives at risk. I always try to be positive when I talk about things, so what is good in Mile High? Naomi Ryan, who also had a recurring role on EastEnders, is absolutely terrific. I dislike her character, but there's no question she brings a sympathy and a humanity to the role that is just not there on the page. She would actually go on to appear in Guardians of the Galaxy and an episode of Doctor Who. 
She's been working consistently and certainly deserves more than what she got to work with here. Stacey Cadman joins the cast in season two as Poppy, who eventually becomes a love interest for Adkins Ed, and who I feel like might have been a response to how unlikable the rest of the characters are. Poppy's the one character who actually comes across as a decent human being and manages to be somewhat likable. And finally, Adkins is his usual charming self, and in addition to his stripping scene, they find some excuses to work in some fight scenes that are actually surprisingly well done. Other than that, I got nothing. After Mile High, Adkins auditioned for a role on Hollyoaks Let Loose, a spin-off of the popular British show Hollyoaks. First airing in 1995 on Britain's Channel 4, the series takes place in the fictional village of Hollyoaks. Similar to EastEnders and Doctors, the show received praise and controversy for portraying subjects rarely seen on British television. Famous cast alums include James Corden, American Gods' Ricky Whittle, Fast and Furious's Natalie Emanuel, and Strike Back's Warren Brown. Side note, watch Strike Back, y'all. It rules. The spin-off Let Loose first aired in 2005. It follows two of the main cast, Marcus Patrick's Ben Davies and Gemma Atkinson's Lisa Hunter, as they leave the village to start a new life. Adkins appears in only a couple of episodes, and as I've lamented before, I was unable to find the episodes online, so I can't report much more. For Adkins, it was primarily just another chance to act. The series wasn't well received, and it only lasted 13 episodes. So now's a good time to check in with Scott and see what he has to say about his time on Mile High and Hollyoaks. You switch back to TV, and, and we get a fairly sizable run on Mile High. How how did that sort of come about? Yeah, so I had an audition. I went for the audition. I got the part. Um, I said, right, we'd like you to come and be in this uh, TV show. I was like, okay, what's the downside? What's the catch? Oh, well, the catch is you've got to play a male stripper. <laughs> I was like, well, you know, it's a living. It's a job. It's still acting, but the problem was... There's scenes in that movie where, I mean, to film them was was nuts because there's one, I remember doing one sequence where there's all these women and I'm on this pole and I'm a stripper and, you know, they don't know who I am. It's not like I'm famous or anything. I'm just some some geezer on a pole. Oh, he's a stripper. So (laughs) I'm doing this routine and all these extras, these, these girls, they're grabbing me and, you know, the private places and, like I'm actually, that's my job and nuts, <laughs> literally nuts, um, getting into some real precarious situations. But yeah, no, that, that was a fun, uh, fun job. And again, it was learning more about the craft of acting and, and getting to do more of it and get, getting better at it. Um, quite a tacky show, really. Um, but, you know, it was giving me an opportunity to act, which is what I wanted to do. Whenever you offered me uh, something that wasn't fighting and was just acting, I, I, I always jumped to the chance because I knew that I could do the fighting and other people knew that. And it was obvious. It was always been a natural at it. But the acting didn't come as natural to me. I had to work at it. So whenever I had the opportunity to work at it, I, I took it. And, you know, that, that was the thinking behind doing a show like that. Let, let me show people what I can do as an actor. And then when I got the role, they started to add little bits in with the martial arts because they learned that I could do that. But, um, you know, for me, it was another another acting job. 
Yeah, I'm actually working. I, I'm almost done working my way through that complete series. And, and I noticed that when you first appear, they, they do manage to work, you know, a few fights in uh, for you there. One question I have. So, you know, Mile High was running for at least one full season and part of another season before you joined it. And you've mentioned, you know, that you had, especially after EastEnders, you had some confidence issues and stuff. What's it like joining a show where there's already an established cast like that? Was that intimidating or did you take that as sort of a liberating challenge? No, it is intimidating. It's nerve wracking. Acting is nerve wracking. You know, you've got a bunch of people stood around a monitor judging you. Oh, is he good? What can we do better? What, you know, it, it, it is judgment. And then the, the, it comes out on, onto television. And, you know, if you're good, people are going to sit back and just enjoy it. But if you're bad, they're going to judge you. And that's okay. That's the nature of the beast. Same as being a professional sportsman, you know, you're either good or you're not. And people are quite, if you're coming into somebody's living room, then those people that are being forced to watch you as home entertainment, they have the right to say whatever they damn well please, whether they like you or whether they don't, because, you know, especially if it's on TV, you, it's almost like you're being forced upon them. So, yeah, the whole thing is, is nerve-wracking. And, yes, they were all very, you know, confident, young actors. Did Mile High sort of spring into Hollyoaks, or was that another one? You auditioned, you got the role. I know you're only on a couple of episodes of it, but... How did that one sort of happen? Yeah, no, not related to uh, Mile High at all. It, that that it, Hollyoaks is shot up in in Liverpool area, so I just went up there for an audition, got the role, uh, took the part, a couple of episodes, um, enjoyed it, had fun. You know, just just another acting job to you know tick off the box and uh, get more experience under my belt. That takes us to 2006's The Pink Panther. There's not much to say. It's a mediocre remake of the Peter Sellers classic directed by Sean Levy and starring Steve Martin, Kevin Klein, and John Renault, as well as Emily Mortimer and Beyonce. It's not for me. Let's just leave it at that. But it did become a decent box office hit, doubling its production budget. And in fact, it's actually Steve Martin's sixth highest grossing movie in his entire career. The film is also notable for the first time Adkins worked with Jason Statham. Adkins appears as a French soccer player, and Statham is the coach whose death kicks off the movie. Adkins does get to perform a really cool backflip to kick the ball into the net, but honestly, his story about filming the movie is way more entertaining than the movie itself. Let's hear what he has to say. Pink Panther happened quite soon after Mile High, I think. Uh, That came because I knew this guy... Dan Frisch, um, he was on there as a line producer in Prague. And they wanted, there was a, a goalkeeper in one of the World Cups that did this crazy move. It was almost like a scorpion kick where the ball was coming over his head. And he jumped up and kicked the ball in this some sort of scorpion kick fashion. And they wanted me to score a goal like that. And I said, well, I can't do that because that's pretty crazy. But what I can do is something crazier. I could do a back somersault, kick it in, Pele style, but actually land on my feet. Now, I said that not knowing if I could actually do it, but I figured I could. 
And so that's how they gave me that job. It was a stunt part, really. But, you know, it was Pink Panther. I remember filming it for a couple of days. All the other footballers were semi-professional footballers. They were fit guys and good footballers. I'm a terrible footballer. I'm good in my legs, but not with a football. Um, and the, the stadium was maybe three quarters full of real people for the first day. There was thousands and thousands of people that had the helicopter shots. It was a massive production. Um, I remember the catering was crazy with lobster and all this stuff. And I had a massive breakfast, which I ended up throwing up because these semi-professional footballers were so fit, running from one end of the pitch to, to the other again and again and again. And I was having to jump up and do this back somersault over and over. I actually had to go go to my trailer and be sick. <laughs> That's a, a lot of cardio, man. That's so much cardio. Yeah, well, I just had a massive, because the, the catering was so amazing. I was stuffed in my face. But anyway, I learned that lesson, <laughs> threw up. And of course, yeah, Jason Statham was there, um, which was right, weird. Weird that I'm doing this strange scene with Jason Statham, who's meant to be a French guy. I remember the director coming over to Statham and saying, he did, you know, he did this little bit and it was mostly improvised. And the director comes over and says, the thing is, it's a French uh, football team and you're the French coach. Can you do it in a French accent? And I remember Statham going, of course I can do a French accent. Yeah, of course I can. And he's like, great, great, doing a French accent. So I'm thinking, oh, how's this going to turn out? And then action and Statham goes into it and he just... Not that he couldn't do it. He just decided not to bother and just did his normal Statham voice. I think he just thought, screw you, I'll do it. I'll do what I want. <laughs> well, and I mean, he's Statham. Like, why would you expect? On the stage. Why do you think you're going to speak like a Frenchman on the stage? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize that that was actually, I will admit, I am rewatching everything for this podcast, but obviously I'm only about four episodes in, so I'm, I'm working my way through, and I haven't watched Pink Panther in years. So I'll fully admit, I totally forgot that he was even in it, and that this would actually, yeah, I guess... Not, not only is it's him, but it, Beyonce is in it as well. And Clive Owen is in it, I remember. I mean, there's quite a few people who sort of show up in these small kind of bit parts in it, but that was... And the guy from Mission Impossible... Um, is his name Henry something? Henry Cavill, yeah. Yeah, and he was the bad guy in Mission Impossible 1. Um, and he's playing the uh, the coach of the fo football team. and uh, he's But he's writing it on a board like it's American football. I was like, I don't do that on football. Um, but he didn't listen to me and he kept doing it. That's fine. Great and, actor. And let me just correct myself. I jumped the gun. Henry Cerny is who you're thinking of. He, uh, I said Henry Cavill because he was also in Mission Impossible. But yeah, you're right. I do yeah. remember Henry Cerny. I heard Henry and just agreed with you. <laughs> and that's fine. I, I'm the one that would have looked bad. So I don't, I, I just wanted to correct that. Um, I'm nothing if not professional. Uh, <laughs> um, this would have been, I guess, I didn't even realize the first time you worked with Statham. So, you know, again... Uh, yeah, that that six degrees of Scott Adkins separation, man. You've you've literally worked with everybody. It is unreal to yeah. me. <laughs> well, tell you what, that film, and I didn't get paid a lot for it. I just it felt like some something fun to do. But I actually wrecked my back on, on that. I, I injured my back, and I, I think it's followed me around for the rest of my life. Maybe I would have had a bad back anyway. Um, 
because I've got one leg shorter than the other. But I do remember having to do that back somersault maybe 40 times that day, maybe more. And they were th- they wanted me, at, at the beginning we were running in and I've got to get to a certain place within the, the box. And at the start, there was a footballer chipping the ball and he was never going to be in the right place. And I was having to do a backflip and try and kick it. And then what they did is they had the first assistant director who had a good arm on him. He was pretty accurate. They would have me run into the box. And then as I turned, he would have already thrown the ball. And I see the ball coming in and I've got to jump up and kick it. And they wanted it in in the, the top corner of the goal. It's very hard to do because if the ball is too far away from me, I'm going to kick it over the over the bar. And if it's too far over my head, I'm going to kick it down. And I remember thinking to myself, there's no way they're going to show this in one shot anyway. So what's the point? Just film me kick it and then just throw it in the goal, <laughs> which is what they did in the movie. They, they edit in the middle of it. So I always knew they were going to do that. But they wanted me to do it in one shot. And we did it over and over and over again because – it wasn't just about me kicking it is the ball had to be in a specific position. And I remember there was on the second day, they didn't have the whole stadium full, but the, the back part behind the net behind the goal was full of people all the way to the top. And they started to chant, get it in, get it in. Cause they were all getting bored and frustrated as everybody else was. But I eventually did it in one, in one shot, the whole thing. But then they edited into it anyway, and I, I hurt my back doing that. I hyperextended my, my back somehow. Never felt the same since. I uh, I know, you know, certainly wasn't as cool as that or doing something as cool as that, but I hurt my back in high school, and it has never been the same since. It has followed me for all low my 44 years. So I have nothing but but sympathy for you because back pain sucks. And it just never quite heals right. Yeah, no, yeah. I've had a few injuries. And uh, I would say that one is has turned out to be the worst. Yeah. Adkins' next release after the Pink Panther would catapult him into the action stratosphere. Your Bible. Oh, yes, sir. I take the good book with me everywhere I go. That is not mine. In a foreign land where corrupt men will stop at nothing to get their amusement, a former champion must enter a whole new ring. It's incredible that I'm sharing a cell with George Chambers here. In this facility, we think we're the of fighters. Booklet's champion, but in here. I am the champion. You know what it feels like to be in here for nothing? You better turn around and get me the fuck out of here. I will. You cannot stop me from doing what I have to do. I ain't fighting, man. Listen, George, we're all gonna make a ton of money. Motherfucker, I'll kill your motherfucking ass. Go with the program. Best way to stay healthy.
word threat. Fucking pussy, get up. You think I need you to drag my opponents? See, this is all a street fight anyway, and that's one of the I'll just go home on his ass. We are now going to talk Undisputed 2. Undisputed 2, Last Man Standing, sees Michael Jai White taking over the role of George Iceman Chambers, originally played by Ving Rhames. Iceman is out of prison and is now the former heavyweight champion of the world. He's also running out of money and appears to not have developed any humility since the last film, which admittedly is part of Iceman's charm. His manager, played in a wonderfully sleazy manner by Ken Lerner, has him doing commercials in Russia. While there, Chambers is framed for drug possession by gangster Gaga, played by Marky Veneer. Gaga wants Chambers to fight in his underground prison against his champion, the man, the legend, the most complete fighter in the world, Yuri Boyka. The first match between the two ends when Chambers Boxing can't handle Boyka's MMA, also aided by Boyka's men misguidedly drugging Chambers, which does not end well for them. After his defeat, Chambers must learn a new style of fighting and fight for his freedom. Okay, so we can't talk about Undisputed 2 without briefly talking about Undisputed 1. Directed by Walter Hill and written by Hill and David Geiler, the film stars Wesley Snipes as Monroe Hutchins, a boxer who's serving a long sentence for murder and who has become the champion of this underground boxing ring in his prison. Into this scenario, we drop Rames Chambers, the heavyweight champion on the outside. Chambers has been convicted of rape, and though he is appealing, he's stuck in prison for now. Hutchins and Chambers end up on a collision course that results in a winner-take-all boxing match with the entire prison watching. In the heart of the Mojave Desert lies Sweetwater Penitentiary. We house murderers, armed robbers, rapists. A high-security prison with a long-standing tradition. It's time! For 10 years, Monroe Hutchin has been undefeated. Monroe wins the This is your house. You own this place. This was my house. I could get up and leave. But Sweetwater is about to receive a new prisoner. George Iceman Chambers remains undefeated heavyweight champion. The word is, the Iceman's day of arrival is tomorrow. Boxing's various governing bodies began stripping you of your title belt. Who they think they're kidding? Everybody knows I'm the champ. And I'm gonna be the champ till I quit. Now, the heavyweight champion from the inside. In here, I'm the champ. We'll meet the heavyweight champion from the outside. Nobody can stand up to what I get. We got the heavyweight champion of the world and an unbeaten prospect. Quit wasting time. Set the thing up. Boy came up to me and said that if I fight some punk in here, he can maybe get me out quick. You're a good champion. We got a champion right here. And he can kick your ass. Wesley Snipes. I can take this guy and I don't need no help. Bing Rains. Ain't but one champ in here. Peter Fogg. You better get ready to fight. Michael Rooker. Give me a situation right in here. And Wes Studi. Two undefeated boxers. Right time, right place, right circumstance. They all can be beaten. 
an unprecedented event. And if I knew I had to go to jail and see a fight like this, I'd have did a crime a long time ago. One undisputed champion. Undisputed. Released in 2002 with a budget of around $20 million, Undisputed was hardly a box office success. It grossed just $15 million and faded from theaters quickly. Another in a fairly lengthy line of box office disappointments for Hill, but I'll get to that in a minute. I have to issue a mea culpa here. In my first episode, I called Undisputed unremarkable. That was based on my feelings when I saw the movie in 2003. Well, I don't know what I was thinking because upon rewatching it for this episode and Undisputed 3 down the road, I found it to be absolutely terrific. Snipes and Reams are given top-notch work here and the film has a hell of a lot more going on under the surface than I gave it credit for initially. I'll talk more about it with AJ and Vice when we get to Undisputed 3, but if you haven't taken the time to check out the, the original Undisputed, do yourself a favor and get on it. I don't want to spend too long on Walter Hill, but action cinema wouldn't be where it is without him. After working as a screenwriter, Hill burst onto the scene as a director with the one-two punch of the Charles Bronson starring boxing drama Hard Times and the existential action movie The Driver with Ryan O'Neill. But it was really his third feature that made him a cult legend. 1979's The Warriors features the titular gang trying to make their way back to their Coney Island home turf after being framed for the assassination of a respected gang leader. Exciting, with colorful characters and memorable villains, The Warriors is a classic and still influences movies to this day, even internationally. The great Ryu Sung Wan pays full homage to it in his killer city of violence. After the Warriors, Hill went on a tear, making the Long Riders and Southern Comfort before finally hitting it big with the mega successful 48 Hours, the movie that gave the world Eddie Murphy and a massive box office hit. And from there it all went off the rails. Hill used his 48 Hours blank check to make his dream project, a rock and roll fable called Streets of Fire. Look, I absolutely adore Streets of Fire, almost more than life itself. It's my favorite Walter Hill movie. It's one of my very favorite movies of all time. It is a crazily inventive, stunningly beautiful film with an absolutely stone-cold Jim Steinman soundtrack. It is incredible. Audiences in 1984 had absolutely no idea what to make of it, and it bombed. It didn't help that the movie went way over budget, and Hill couldn't quite pull his vision together. Unfortunately, after that, Hill basically had to spend time doing work-for-hire things like Brewster's Millions, and his career from here on out would be a mix of a few highs and several lows. Undisputed would be one of those highs, at least creatively, if not financially. But never again would he find the success he saw with 48 Hours. But this podcast isn't about Walter Hill or even Undisputed. It's about Undisputed 2. At the height of the DVD craze, studios started figuring something out. There had been a market for direct-to-video during the VHS days, but with DVDs being priced to sell... That meant the demand was arguably even higher. In the 80s, most VHS tapes were priced for rental, which meant to purchase one, you typically had to pay $100 or more in $1985 to take it home. Studios figured out 
that they could make cheap DTV action movies and they would sell. But to keep them from getting overshadowed in the market or on the store shelves, they would go through their catalog and find something that they considered to be a marketable title and make a sequel to it. Things like Roadhouse 2, 8mm 2, hell, even the Sandra Bullock thriller The Net got a sequel. Most of the films were in-name-only sequels, and even the ones that weren't, like Roadhouse 2, only paid the slightest of attention to the previous film. And as one might expect, most were bad to unwatchable. But every once in a while, one would come along that would elevate the DTV game to a whole new level, and very few did it better than Undisputed 2. How? Well, it did a few things right. First, it is a true sequel in that it brings back one of the main characters from the first film as the protagonist. In this case, Raim's antagonist Chambers becomes this film's hero, something that Undisputed 3 would also replicate. Second, it was shepherded by a true action director. See, most of these DTV films were directed by second unit folks trying to get their first feature under their belt or TV directors hoping to break into movies. They weren't necessarily action directors and they didn't necessarily care. Visionary is not a word that would be applied to a lot of them. But Undisputed 2 was directed by once and future podcast subject Isaac Florentine, who here would perfect the filming style he'd been developing for the last 10 years. Clean fights, effective use of speed ramping, and making sure that every fighter in his movie had the legit skills to look good on screen. Florentine also recognized that MMA was becoming the dominant fighting sport, so he shifted the focus from boxing to martial arts, opening up the creativity that he could then use in the fights. Third, there was no way Rames was likely to come back for a DTV sequel. And even if he did, Chambers' fighting style in the first film wouldn't fit with Florentine's MMA-focused style. So instead, he cast one of the most dynamic and imposing actors in the business, Michael Jai White, to replace Rames as Chambers. Let's talk a little bit about White here. I had a whole thing planned to discuss Michael Jai White, and I still may as an Adkins-adjacent episode. But then Scott went and did an absolutely fantastic Art of Action episode with him. I can't imagine you listen to me and don't watch the Art of Action, but if you don't, it is free fight film school, and it is amazing. Also, it's pretty much a one-man show on Scott's part, even though he made me swear to tell you that he had an army of minions producing it. It's very cool, it's a great way to support Scott and all of these other stars that we love. However, showing no consideration for me whatsoever, he went and asked White pretty much everything I would want to discuss. So instead, I'm going to tell you, just watch that. I'll leave a link to it in the show notes. What I am thinking about doing is when we get closer to Accident Man and Triple Threat, I'm thinking about bringing a guest on and doing an Adkins adjacent on White, but also specifically Blood and Bone. If that's something y'all would like to hear, please reach out to me on Twitter and let me know. The final thing Undisputed 2 did right was let Isaac Florentine bring back his special forces ace in the hole, the man himself, Scott Adkins. Yuri Boyka would go on to become Adkins' iconic character, to the point that for years after, people were surprised to find that he wasn't Russian, but rather an English lad from Birmingham. 
Scott told me he sometimes wonders if he should if he should have just steered into playing the Boyka character or Boyka type characters for most of his career. But I think we can all agree that the variety he brings to his roles is one of his greatest assets. Look, I could talk about Boyka for hours, but let's be honest. I'm not the one you want to hear. Here's Scott on the filming of Undisputed 2. All right, so when we left off, we were we had just finished up the Pink Panther, which takes us into kind of 2006 uh, as far as release dates go. I'm guessing that you filmed Undisputed 2 before you started Holby City, given that they're both 2006. Is would that be would that be correct? Um Holby City was after Undisputed 2, I think. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I figured because I I figured that you would have had to have filmed Undisputed Two. So let's talk a little bit about Undisputed Two, which I'm gonna obviously. I mean, my God, man, this is one of the foundational movies of your career. But I also know it's one that you've talked a lot about with a lot of people, and you've you've covered it quite a bit on the Art of Action. So I don't really want you to. I'm gonna try and avoid having you repeat yourself with a bunch of stuff that you've already said, but. One of the first things I kind of wanted to talk about is because it's such a pivotal part of the character is the Boyka accent uh, because it's it's so much more than just an accent. It's a whole different voice that you've created on that. How did you come about that and formulate that? Um, So I, I, I got one of these CDs, which was Russian accents, you know, and so I started listening to this CD, but also I just kept thinking of the Russian guy from Rambo 3, the, the bad guy. Who is this John Rambo? And uh, that sort of voice was sticking in my head. And that's pretty much what I did for Boyka, really. Um, I just took it down a few few levels. Who is this John Rambo? You know, and that, that kind of became the Boyka thing. I was in Bulgaria as well, obviously, so I was leaning heavily into their sort of accent. So, you know, me, to be honest, I can't really tell much of a difference between their accent and, and the Russian accent. So it's, it's obviously not spot on. Um, and I, I do find it amazing if, if ever a Russian says to me, I thought you were Russian because they must be able to pick it apart, surely. But uh, it just felt right. You know, it, it just felt right. And uh, I was trying not to go too Borat because that had come out at the same time. I remember making jokes with, Michael Jai White about Borat that I was doing an impersonation of him. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, and, and, you know, and that's the thing. It's so, I mean, you know, anybody that's listened to the show knows I periodically do a terrible Boyka accent and it does end up sounding a lot more like Borat than anything else. I mean, it's not easy and it, it sounds so natural, especially again, you know, talking to you now and obviously having seen other roles, knowing what your your actual Birmingham accent sounds like. Um, did you ever at any point work with with a like a vocal coach or, or an accent Not coach? Not for that one. I have a lot for the American accent. Think about the American accent. You've got to be pitch perfect because obviously it's a lot of Americans watching these movies and English people and everyone from around the world hears the American accent so often. You really need to be pitch perfect on that. But you can, there's a little bit of leeway that you can have with a Russian accent because, you know, most of the world are going to be okay with as long as it sounds kind of good. Um, 
but yeah, I've got a pretty good ear for accents, really, I, I guess. Um, so I was able to pull it off and it, it wasn't too much of a caricature. It, it just seemed to work, didn't it? it? It worked for the character. And of course, the whole moustache and the hair. And we really tried to ugly him up. At one point, we tried staining his teeth and all this. And then we, we, we felt we were going too far. But we just wanted to make me look as intimidating as possible. And Mike was very concerned because, you know, he really liked the script, wanted to do a good film. Um, and he's coming in and he's got a thing about having people be smaller than him because he's such a big guy and he's such an intimidating presence. He's such a fierce martial artist. It's hard for him to look in danger because, you know, look at him. It's Michael Jai White. So he was very concerned that we should make me look taller um, and so there were times when I'd be acting with him, he'd have his shoes off and I'd be on uh, lifts in my boots. In the ring, we would dutch the camera so that our head, so that my head would appear slightly taller than his. And we did all these tricks um, that really worked. And still to this day, people are like kind of freaked out when they see that I'm not over six foot, do you know what I mean? And as big as I was, obviously I, I built myself up and had a lot of time to do that. And it wasn't, in bad shape before anyway. I mean, I had a good amount of muscle on my frame, but was able to take it to the next level. And um, the coat, the costume, everything like that. You know, once you put the clothes on, you can really find a character. And with the accent as well, you can get, get away from yourself. And I, I enjoy to get away from myself. In fact, I find it very freeing. And I think whenever I can do that successfully in a realistic way, it... Um, can oftentimes be a standout performance well and you obviously i mean you've ended up creating a character that is a defining character certainly for action fans i mean it's boyk is a legendary character he's he's an all-time great um so you was and again like i said i don't want to i don't want to ask you to repeat yourself too much but was this one where, because this is your second team up with Isaac, was Isaac basically, I want Scott for this, or was it an audition process? How did you you actually end up re-teaming with Isaac? Yeah, I'd never met Isaac before Special Forces. He phoned me up previously, as we discussed. And then when I did Special Forces, that was my first time meeting him. And, you know, we, we got on great, and I did my best, and he appreciated that. And so... A couple of times in between Special Forces and Undisputed, I went out to Los Angeles. Um, I think I may have even stayed at his house for, for one of those times. And um, we became a lot closer. And when they offered him Undisputed 2, actually it was a boxing movie, and he said, well, I want to make it martial arts, so let's have this Russian character. Let's make him an MMA guy. MMA was just coming in, into the world at, at that time, really. The UFC was becoming a thing around that time. And uh, we very much based the character on Chuck Liddell. Um, and, but yeah, he, he fought for me. He went to New Image and he said, I want this guy. And Bo, Boaz Davidson from, from New Image Millennium Films, he was a great supporter of, of mine and always has been. Um, and yeah, they, they, they gave me the part. I believe that they were thinking of somebody like Dolph Lundgren. They may have even been talking to Dolph. I need to ask Dolph because I'm doing a film with him at the minute. I need to ask him. I keep forgetting to ask him. Well, and certainly Dolph, I think, would have made, you know, given initially, like, looking at the script would have made sense because he, like 
Michael J. White is an actual human giant. But what I love about Undisputed 2 is in addition to all the the camera tricks that you were talking about, you and, and Mike are just different enough in your styles that it makes it it makes both your big fights with him, I think, really visually interesting because they and I'll talk I'll ask you a little bit about about working with J.J. Perry for the first time. But, you know, that movie really leans into sort of your speed and your your tricking ability, which which, you know, Mike is super fast. I mean, I've seen Blood and Bone. That dude can destroy anybody. But the movie really does lean into how you're able to sort of bounce around and move around so kind of more quickly than he is in that first fight. And then we obviously get to the end when, when uh, unfortunately, you know, he, your, your knee gets jacked up, but that he has to learn how to fight like you. I think it makes it a really visually interesting fight film, far more visually interesting than, than I think it would have been if they had gone with a boxing route and cast somebody like Dolph, not that Dolph isn't great. I love Dolph, but you know, yeah, that, yeah. That would have been a little more similar to the original Undisputed. It would have felt more like a yeah. just a sequel to Undisputed rather than kind of the start of something new. Yeah, to be fair, I don't think Dolph would have done it anyway because with too many similarities to Ivan Draga, uh, I, but I know that that's who they imagined the character to be. But yes, um, yeah, physically, look, I was ready to state my claim and to make a mark. I went into it with very, uh, you know, JJ as well. JJ Perry wanted to stake his claim as well. Now JJ's become a huge stunt coordinator, second unit director, and now he's going to be directing his first big film for Netflix with Jamie Foxx quite soon. Um, but he, he wanted to make a mark and Mike wanted to make a mark. Isaac wanted to do great. So we were all very hungry to do something special. We all worked really hard. We're all very proud of what we did. The only problem was the ring was tiny. When you look at the other Boyka movies, the ring is so much bigger. Um, when I look at that, I just see this tiny ring. It's amazing that we could even move around in that thing. Uh, but yeah, it was amazing. It, it was Michael Jai White, you know, it's such an amazing martial artist. Fantastic boxer as well, you know, coming off playing Tyson and all the rest of it, really knew what he was doing and brought some great stuff to the screen and yeah, we, we just wanted to do a great job and worked hard. Well, and you also, so this is something that we're going to kind of come back to a little bit. When I was doing all my research for, for this session of recording, I, I, I realized that there's actually, you know, there's the Koichi Yuji alpha stunts, but there's also the alpha stunt team in Bulgaria with guys like Georgi Manchev who oh, yeah. were doing all the stunts on this and are guys that you're going you know, kind of to end up working with fairly regularly, but this was, was this sort of the first time you worked with the, the, that Bulgarian stunt team? Uh, yeah. My first time in Bulgaria, it was in a different studio. Now they've got the big new Boyana studios and everything. This was some horrible thing up in the Hills. It was the middle of winter. There was snow everywhere. We we're staying in the Jasmine hotel and it was on a hill because it's a big hill in uh, Sofia and it was at the bottom of the hill. And to get to where they had the breakfast, you had to walk across the car park and go into there for, for your breakfast. And uh, a couple of mornings, it was just ice all up the car park and it was uphill. And you'd literally have to get down on your hands and knees and crawl. <laughs> and you'd be sliding back just to try and get a little bit of brekkie. 
it's crazy. Um, yeah, and the, the Bulgarian stunt team. Now, here's a funny thing. There is a, a Bulgarian stunt guy. His name is Troy. We call him Troy. Troyan Milinev. You know, I can't say the name very well, but it's Troy. And he's in all Undisputed uh, movies with Boyka. I fight him in all the three films that I did. He's the, the second guy that I fight where I do the backflip kick and then the kick over his head and front kick him in the body. He's that guy. And then in Undisputed 3, he shaved his head and grew a beard. And I do the same kick on him in that film. And then in the fourth one, he's the guy that I do a double back kick on. I actually copped him in the chin and he blacked out for a second and, and, and went down and came back up again, woke back up. Um, great guy, great guy. All, all the Bulgarian stunt guys, great hardworking people. Love them to bits. Well, and they just, they work crazy amounts of movies. Uh, they're, you know, I was scrolling through their stuff on their website and, and obviously we'll, we'll kind of come back to them a little bit on, on some of your other movies, but it is, they're, they're impressive. And I, I, they, I had not really realized who they were. So I'm, I'm glad that this gave me the opportunity to find them and actually start championing, championing them the way that I champion like Koichi and Yuji and, and all the other stunt people that I really uh, like and respect. Um, yeah, there's one guy in, in that team, um, Bobby Ilyev, and he's the secret weapon. He, he's a real ideas man, really understands filmmaking. He came up with a lot of the stuff that we did in El Gringo. He came up with a load of stuff we did in Hercules with the sword spinning around my thumb. He designed the sword so it would spin around my thumb. It had this little circular thing in the middle. Very smart, intelligent uh, stunt performer slash filmmaker. I was going to ask you this later, but I'll just ask it now. Um, at this point, do you have a second home in Bulgaria, given how many movies you filmed I there? Have done, but I stopped. See, I stopped doing as many films there. I did a load of stuff for Millennium Films when they were geared more towards some of the lower budget end stuff. But once they started doing the bigger budget stuff, like Expendables and all the films they do now, you know, I haven't haven't been able to work with them as much, unfortunately. But it was the, uh, you know, the older guys there, um, Boaz Davidson and, um, you know, Abby Lerner that were looking after me. The new, the new uppercomers now, um, they, don't, they don't love the Atkins as much, <laughs> I guess. Which, which is a shame. Uh, but, yeah. It, it no just, taste. That's the problem. No taste. No taste. Yeah. But no, I, you know, I was just noticing as I was going through stuff, how many movies there in a, you know, and the, like the next batch we're going to talk about, you know, most of them were filmed in Bulgaria. And I was just thinking, I'm like, man, I hope he just bought like a summer home there or something like that. Yeah, I know Sophia very well. Absolutely. I think I've done over 10 films there, I think. Yeah, that that looks about right based on my research, which is, yeah. is a lot because I know they're they're you know, they're. They're such a big hub for low-budget action movies because it's fairly inexpensive to film there, but they very clearly have the talented people there to help make the movies, you know, good. As opposed to some other countries where they might be as cheap to film, but don't necessarily have the infrastructure or the talent to help make the movies good. Yeah, yeah. So, anything else you want to add about Undisputed Two before we jump into Holby City? 
God, what do people not know about it? I don't, I don't know. I can't think. It's all been it's all been covered, hasn't it? Yeah, that's that's why this is one of the ones that I was like, I there's just very few. I mean, questions. One thing I can say, Michael. One thing I can say about Undisputed, and what really took me up a level was meeting up with JJ Perry, because he would push me to go further to do things that I didn't realize that I could do. So, you know, the, the, the flash kick off, I do off Silvio Simak's chest. I run up his chest. I flash kick him and somersault off his chest as I kick him. You know, that was JJ saying, can I did it, you know, I did it off the, off the ground. And he said, well, can you do it off his chest? I'm like, Jesus, is that possible? And I tried it and, and we did it. And like, kicking over that guy's head and front kicking him, but then doing the, the flash kick before that all in one shot, you know, JJ and Isaac forcing me to do that. I probably wouldn't have pushed myself if it wasn't for those guys. Um, we created some crazy kicks for Wolverine with JJ. You know, he would always push me to, to do better. Um, I worked with him on the tournament as well. Great guy. Um, just a real great guy to be around, funny guy. Um, a lot of respect in, in the stunt community. Um, but yeah, so somebody like him that's going to raise your game um, can make you realize that you can do more things than you even thought possible. Well, and it's so funny, not funny, but just that that when you're like me and you're very deep in that world and you pay attention to, you know, I pay attention when, when I watch a movie, I watch and I watch the credits, like I hang around until the stunts, you know, I can, because I want to see those names and you know, that when you see a name and, and JJ's one of them, I mean, he's at the top of the list, but there's, there's him, there's Sam Hargrave, you know, uh, Larnell, you see those names and you just know that you're going to see something special because they have such a mind, at least as a viewer to me, they have such a mind for creating new and inventive ways of doing action so that you're not going to just see the same thing that you've seen a hundred or a thousand times before. And so I, I'm always, I'm always in awe of guys like that. And I'm always, you know, I think it's amazing that you've gotten to work with pretty much all of them because it is, you know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it is a collaborative process, right? Adkins doesn't just stand alone. He needs the the people to to push him and, and help him and stuff like that. And what JJ did in this movie, I think, you know, figuring out how best to, to use your talents and your skills that way, coupled with creating the strong character. I mean, I, what am I going to say about Undisputed 2? It's terrific. Everybody loves it. So, I mean, it's, uh, but I just think, it's really cool that you've gotten to work with guys like him and work with them more than once. Yeah. And hopefully again, and all these guys, you know, they're all from eight, seven, 11. They, they all came up. I worked work with them all in the beginning and they've gone on to amazing things. Um, people don't know that JJ was very instrumental in the John Wick style. Very, very, very instrumental. So yeah, he's a smart guy. Well, and I know, I mean, I, you've talked about, I don't, I could go on for hours about 8711, but you, frankly, you've covered them so much on Art of Action in a much better, more thorough capacity than I ever could. But obviously, I just have nothing but love and respect for, for what Chad and, and Dave and everybody at 8711 has put together. It's unbelievable. Yeah, they're great. They're doing it. They're men of the moment. Can't wait for what they do next. All right, I think that's enough intro. 
Let's bring on this week's champion, AJ Muller, to talk Undisputed 2, Last Man Standing. So what are we waiting for? Bring me your fucking champion. All right, I am super excited to welcome my guest for this episode. He is one of my absolute favorite people on Twitter. He has written for Daily Grindhouse. Right now, basically, Twitter's his home, and I will tell you, he is one of the best follows on that entire hell site. AJ Muller, man, how are you tonight? I am doing great, Mike. Thanks for having me. So happy to have you here, man. You are one of the very first people that I thought of. Uh, when I came up with the idea of doing this, because you and I have been Twitter friends for a few years now, and we bonded. I remember we bonded. The first movie that we really bonded over was War of the Arrows, because I had uh, been meaning to watch that for years, and you were watching it one night and tweeting about it, and I was like, all right, I'm going to get off my ass and watch it. And, of course, you were correct. It was fabulous. Um and I was mad at myself for sitting on it for so long. That movie's a stone cold winner, and anyone listening who hasn't seen it, watch War of the Arrows. That movie is a champion. It absolutely is. Um, so everybody knows we're going to be talking about Undisputed Two: Last Man Standing. But as I always do with my guests, I like to ask them about their their sort of start with with action movies. When did you become an action movie fan? Uh, well, I mean, if we're being technical about it, I think I came, I became an action movie fan when I became a, a movie fan, really, because the first movie that the movie that changed my life, that changed everything that put me babbling about movies on Twitter and led to me talking about movies on a podcast like this, uh, would have been when I was six years old and I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark. Now I know that to some people that falls in the adventure category, whatnot, that's, that's great. But Raiders of the Lost Ark has better action than a lot of movies that, you know, champion and, and label themselves as action movies. It just changed everything. It was so exciting, such great set pieces. You know, I, it, just, it just changed the whole game for me. And from that point on, I was a young dude trying to get me some movies, chasing that high, you know. Um, and then, you know, just uh, just watching everything I could. I watched all kinds of movies as a kid. I grew up in the 80s. Uh, you know, obviously, when I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, it was new. It was in theaters when I was six years old. So uh, I think you and I, uh, Mike, are about the same age. I think we're both 45 or thereabouts. Um, so growing up an action movie fan in the 80s was really a special time to see the, the rise of Arnold and, and Stallone. Those guys were on tops. And then you had, you know, Chuck Norris chilling out and doing his thing. Lone Wolf McQuaid was a big one when I was a kid. Love that movie. Um, and of course, you know, Conan and uh, growing up on First Blood and all that stuff. Um, the Saturday and Sunday afternoon matinees on like Channel 40, that kind of thing, where it was dubbed kung fu movies and stuff like that. Uh, getting a, a wide range of the action movie thing seeing die hard when i was you know whatever it was 12 13 years old another game changer a few years after that discovering john woo when i got to see the killer big game changer um 
and then from there diving deeper into uh, Hong Kong movies, which at the time weren't so readily available as I'm sure, you know, you remember we had to hunt that shit down. Um, and so, yeah, it's just been, it's been a lifelong journey uh, exploring all this stuff. And then, you know, of course, finding someone like Scott or, or Michael Jai White and uh, all, all the different nooks and crannies of, of action from all over the world and, uh, the gunplay stuff, uh, the big budget stuff, the small, gritty, low budget, but really well choreographed and lots of heart, lots of lots of passion in it uh, that you'll see, j again, just all over the world. I just, I love it. I love it all. I mean, I love horror movies, but man, action movies, they're my shit. I, I love them too. And it's it's been a great few decades just being able to to take the journey and see all the different things see john Wu come to america and do face off you know i don't think a lot of people in america were ready for the craziness of face off but <laughs> here we are yeah and miraculously face off was actually a big hit like that that is i know something that i will still you know i i tweeted out uh i think you were the one that was actually watching knockoff and i tweeted out that in 1998 that was released in 1800 theaters 1800 for knockoff like it was a different time man totally a yep. different era um getting to see the previous movie uh troy harks and van damme's uh collaboration getting to see double team on the big screen you don't get that shit nowadays we, we can do that thing now but getting able to being able to see that then oh man is yeah if I remember correctly, I think Double Team had a Super Bowl ad. Like, can you imagine a Choi Hawk <laughs> movie starring Jean-Claude Van Damme and Dennis Rodman with a Super Bowl ad? I, I, I know it was some big sporting event. It may have been the NCAA. I don't remember exactly what month it came out, but... <clears throat> But That's yeah. got to be a tagline somewhere. It seems like a fever dream, but no, kids. It was just the 90s. Yep, yep. And man, Beautiful. I... I do want to tell you that you are a a constant source of inspiration for me when I talk about movies because <laughs> you are constantly trying to always find the positive in whatever movie you're talking. You know, there's a few that I can tell you really don't like, but for the most part, if you don't like a movie, we're never going to hear you talk about it. You are constantly trying to find the positive in the movies you watch. And I really try and do that too. I'm not as successful at it all the time as you are, but I really try and do that too, because man, making movies is so fucking hard. And, and, yeah. and anytime somebody can make a movie, just make a movie and get it released. I I always have a hard time just crapping on it. You know, I always figure yeah. ev everything has something, at least something you can focus on that has some value to it. A lot of things, almost everything. And, and thank you for saying that, man. But I mean, movies, any movie that gets made is a fucking miracle is what it is. You know, I mean, like you said, it's so hard. To just get one made and get one out there, whether or not everyone even sees it, just to get one out there, just to just, just to make it exist is is an uphill climb, the likes of which I don't think a lot of people understand. And I just, I just love movies. I love being told a story. Movies are magic. And yeah, you're going to find me bitch about some usually the, the really, really bad ones. Uh, or the really boring ones. Usually that's the worst is when they're really boring more than more so than when they're incompetent. Uh, 
they they make me mad <laughs> it's weird like i get really pissed off at the really the really boring ones and that's the one you'll see most of my ire but that yeah i try not to do that um and i just i honestly like more stuff than i don't and a part of it is being smart to a degree and i don't mean like i'm smart what i mean is i watch uh i choose what i watch pretty smart like i don't I'm not going to watch a bunch of musicals because by and large musicals are not my bag. It's just not what I'm into. Um, there's been some that I do like, sure. And I'm learning to like them better as I get older. And I'm always trying to expand my horizons in terms of the different genres and the stories that I can be told. And cause I mean, it's like, it's like Ebert said, movies are a machine for generating empathy and a lot of other people smarter than me on many of other occasions before me have pointed out that they, they can teach you about people and the world in which we live. You get viewpoints into things, you know, and, and a lot of this high-minded, deep, intellectual, emotional stuff, which is true. But also, it's it's just amazing to be able to see shit that you just never be able to see. That That's just not real. Like... Uh, anything Jim Cameron does or, you know, what have you, it's, it's, it can be spectacle. It can be fantasy. It can take you to that other place, this other world. And that's what I love. I love being told all different kinds of stories. And I like watching people kick the shit out of each other. Um, <laughs> not so much in real life. I, I have seen bad things happen in real life and no, it's not fun, but we all have a side where we need to vent certain things. The, the more, you know, not to be all highbrow or you know philosophical about it, but a lot of horror directors and action directors have pointed out that you know the the more animalistic side and or whatever you want to get into, but it vents a lot of energy and and it's exciting. It movie violence is exciting. Real life, no, I don't not into it. Movie violence though is rad and it's stylized and even when it's not, it's just hard hitting and gritty and you know people say like, Ooh, the rate is, so it is, but that's super stylized too, because you have to choreograph the fuck out of that to make that work. Um, not to get into the weeds, sorry, but no, you're, you're fine. Cause you're, you're totally right. Because, you know, I've, as you can imagine running a podcast about a martial artist, I've had some people ask me if I've done martial arts in my life or if I practice martial arts, I have practiced, uh, not for very long because <laughs> it, it turns out that I really like film fighting and I really don't like getting punched in the face. <laughs> so, you know, for me, it's like, I like the dance that comes from film fighting because really film fighting is much more of a choreographed dance than it is anything resembling an actual fight for the most part. Yeah, real fighting is dirty and sloppy and fucked up and it usually ends up on the ground. Yeah, and it's not cinematic at all. No, I mean, there's no. nothing in even even professional fighting, you know, if you were to put an actual MMA fight as the finale in your movie, unless it's one of the all-time great fights, you know, Weidman, Anderson, Silver, or something like that, that's mm. going to be a really boring climax to your movie because those fights aren't very cinematic. Boxing matches are fun to watch as boxing matches, but they're not very cinematic. They don't have the rhythm and the flow and the narrative arc that cinema requires. So that's why Rocky is completely unrealistic because it works better as cinema than mm. what a real boxing match would look like. Yep. And it's it's done so skillfully that 
it's it's nearly impossible for me and a lot of people i know to watch a rock rocky movie and not get caught up to the point where you're cheering and it just it just fills you with this just that that energy that rise you just want yeah you know and you're just you're just there you're in it 100 it's it's so you could say inspiring but it's it just moves you you know it gets you it gets you going it it makes you grab the grab the arms of your chair or grit your teeth you know like a good action movie does you tense up a little bit you know or you find yourself kind of ducking and weaving in your chair a little bit i mean not like a full-on shadow boxing thing but you're moving a little bit you're twitching kind of because you're you're into it like it's almost like you're involved in the best the best action movies do that not the quick cut you know edited 500 cuts in 60 second bullshit but the ones that actually take time to choreograph it where you know where you are you know where everybody is in relation to each other uh, it's shot well enough that you can actually see what's happening it's not just oh i get a blur of movement and then oh the person fell back i'm to understand they got hit somehow maybe he punched him but then you're moving forward in another five cuts and you you don't really get a chance to register anything uh, so that's the beauty to me of why i'm into action and the best action that i really respond to that's why I, that's why walter hill is my guy well, and that's actually perfect because I was going to ask you about your history with Scott, but I'm going to actually move that to the end a little bit because we're talking about Rocky movies. We're talking about boxing. And you just mentioned Walter <laughs> Hill. Perfect okay. segue. We cannot talk about Undisputed 2 without talking about Undisputed 1. I know Walter Hill is your guy. Uh, yeah. Tell me sort of when you found Walter Hill. What was your gateway Walter Hill movie? Oh, man. Um, you know, I'd been watching Walter Hill without really, it was kind of like the same thing that happened to me with John Carpenter. I just one day somewhere between the age of 10 and 15 realized I just kept seeing that guy's name on movies that I responded to really strongly. Uh, with Walter, it would have been like, you know, 48 hours, you know, stuff like that. Um, and right about my late teens, I finally got around to watching Extreme Prejudice. Uh, I assume you know Extreme Prejudice. I certainly do. Okay. That movie, that movie kicked my ass. And that, it was kind of like, I, I must go watch the rest of this man's stuff. I'd already seen The Warriors, you know, and again, 48 Hours and Streets of Fire. But Streets of Fire, uh, its few action beats notwithstanding, is is not exactly what you would call an action movie. That's more rock and roll fantasy. Rock, sorry, rock and roll fable, as Walter would call it. I was going to correct um, you when you... Uh... Yeah. <laughs> I always think it was, of it as this fantastic fantasy. Um, someone said something one time that they had heard that Streets of Fire was uh, the like the past version of the world of the warriors like that universe streets of fire was set before the warriors i don't i don't and see I, that unreasonably i mean i i think there's definitely uh there's enough there i think you could go with that yeah i i i think walter was well at the very least walter was very much working in that you know that's what he he was doing i think uh, whether it was a, a conscious thing or he intended to tell that to somebody. I think it was just something cool someone realized one day. 
Um, but anyway, yeah, Extreme Prejudice made me go back. And, and I had seen The Long Riders because I, I do like a lot of Westerns too. Um, but I went back and I watched uh, The Driver specifically. And I was like, oh, this is an entirely different kind of action film than uh, Extreme Prejudice. This is this is car and movement. And uh, I didn't know it at the time, but a lot of like, you know, a little bit of the French New Wave and, and art house kind of stuff mixed with that 70s uh, nihilist existential bullshit, you know, that was so cool at the time. Um, so yeah, Extreme Prejudice is really, I think what I would call my gateway into really getting into what Walter Hill had to offer. Um, and then going back and rewatching everything I already had of his, uh, like um, Southern Comfort, which uh, removed from having seen it as like a 10 or 12 year old or whatever it was, I'd seen it the first time. Uh, all those action movies and all the other movies in between that I had learned from or get, and got an education from, Southern Comfort was like, holy shit, this is, I think this is a masterpiece. Uh, you know, and then from there, just making sure that that I checked every box. And I love Last Man Standing. I know not a lot of people do. I fucking love that movie, a gangster Western. Thank you, please. We, uh, mixed with a little bit of John Woo. Yes. We were actually just talking about that uh, either earlier today or yesterday. And uh, in the 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 uh, Action Undisputed Discord that... Uh, I like Last Man Standing as well. Uh, I think a lot of action fans do. The, the biggest problem with that movie is just unfortunately the two absolute cinematic masterpieces that came before it that were based on mm. the same story. I, I think if Last Man Standing had been the first adaptation of Red Harvest that we ever got, we would all be going crazy for it. It's just unfortunately sure. when as great as Walter Hill is when Kurosawa and Leone get there before <laughs> you. <laughs> they're going to put a, a mark in concrete. Yeah. yeah. They're, not, they're not writing it in pencil. These yeah. guys. Well, I'm glad you brought up those movies because I, I, and you unfortunately haven't had a chance to hear my intro yet, but, but for listeners, you will have heard it. You know, I, I talk a bit about Walter Hill in my intro and talk about, Starting with Hard Times, man, that guy just went on a run right up until Streets of Fire. And then he blows that blank check on Streets of Fire, which is my favorite Walter Hill movie. I love that movie. But he blows that blank check and then it just it's like his it's not that his career stops in the tracks because we get Extreme Prejudice. We get Last Man Standing. We get obviously Undisputed, but. He never achieves the same highs that he had on that run. No, and the movie that he had to make in order to get back into the game was Brewster's Millions, which I don't think is anybody's idea of what Walter Hill should be out there doing. You know, um, Crossroads a little closer to it, but yeah, he they I don't think they wanted to give him anything after Streets of Fire, and he finally was like, "Look, I'll I'll do Brewster's Millions. I'll do your Richard Pryor." john candy comedy um and it's a shame it's a shame really uh he and my all-time favorite director is john carpenter walter hill is my second and there's a lot of parallels with their careers um they they went on an absolute tear for a period there from the late mid to late 70s to the mid 80s roughly yeah absolutely i mean i i have long argue, argued that <clears throat> Carpenter's run from Dark Star up to basically They Live is 
one of maybe the five greatest runs that a director has ever had in in film history. I mean, every single one of those movies is an all-timer, and most of them not appreciated at the time. And I think Walter (laughs) Hill, you know, because certainly Extreme Prejudice wasn't a big box office hit. Last Man Standing wasn't a big box office hit. Undisputed wasn't a big box office hit. And, and, And so I think the parallels are there because... Hill's movies, especially post Streets of Fire, were uh, not appreciated well in their time either. And I think they are getting a lot of them are getting reevaluated. Unfortunately, Extreme Prejudice is just so damn hard to to find and to oh come God. by. Um, because I do think that is one that a lot of people would really dig if they could actually get their hands on it. You know what I'm saying? I I think there's got to there's got to be some sort of rights issue or something that you know us regular folk aren't privy to, because after uh, Shout Factory, with their Shout Select series, did uh, Southern Comfort and Trespass, which are great. I kind of hope they would be able to give that same treatment to Extreme Prejudice because it's it's more than worthy of that, and it'll it would find, I think, a great audience, very receptive to it. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. So that that leads us to a perfect uh, segue to talk about Undisputed. So AJ, mm-hmm. give me your initial thoughts on on Walter Hill's Undisputed. Uh, you know, I went to see it in the theater because, I mean, anytime a Walter Hill movie was released in theaters, I was going to be there if I could see it. I even went to see Supernova, for Christ's sake. Um undisputed i had a lot of fun with i i still do really enjoy it as just kind of this uh little unassuming b movie uh the prison movie mixed with the boxing movie um i will say up front that i my my main problem with it and i don't have many and this is not a deal breaker by any means um a lot of the fights most of the fights uh like 80 90 of the fights aside from a couple of the brief beats outside uh but the ones in the ring are are filmed inside a cage like a literal cage match and too much of the camera work i i I kept finding myself wishing that he would put the camera more inside the cage he shot a lot of roaming camera uh outside the cage um and occasionally it got hard to not follow the action, but discern. It was just a lot of movement and you could see what was happening, but it wasn't clear enough. And I understand, um, you know, that, you know, form is dictated by function and the, he was filming guys inside a cage in a prison and that's all fine. But I just wish he'd have gotten a little closer, some of the, some of that stuff. But overall, I really liked that, Wesley Snipes and and Ving Rhames got to play the the characters they did that they were playing more types than actual characters because there's nothing wrong with that as long as it's done well and Walter Hill is trafficked in that sort of storytelling the mythic archetypes his whole career and I think he did that really well and Snipes and um, Rhames are great enough actors that they can just kind of inhabit that sort of type and just kind of present that to you uh, very easily, I think, within their skill set. Um, and then he surrounded them with a bunch of little, uh, you know, a ton of character actors from 
Wes Studi to, you know, even Fisher Stevens running around as a little rat face guy. Um, Peter Falk, you know, the great Peter Falk, you got Michael Rooker in there. I mean, it's just a, for a fan of that kind of movie, just a, it, it gets in, it does its job, it gets out. It doesn't have any, you know, it's not putting on any airs. It doesn't have any pretensions. It doesn't pretend that it's saying something deep about, you know, our prison system or the, the triumph of the human spirit over adversity or anything. It's not, it's not any of that bullshit. You know, there's other movies that, that do a good job of telling those kind of stories and shining a light on that kind of uh, insightful uh, human drama. No. Walter Hill wants to tell a story about these two dudes, you know, the unstoppable force, the immovable object in prison. And who's going to walk away? Who's going to be undisputed? And I think it's great, you know, for that. Um, it is really good at being the kind of movie it wants to be. And that's generally how I judge a movie. Is it successful at doing what it wants to do? And I think Undisputed is really goddamn successful at doing what it wants to do. And I had and have a great time with it every time I watch it. Yeah, I actually issued a mea culpa because I hadn't seen it since 2003 and wasn't that impressed with it. I, I think I was expecting it to be something different, maybe because it had Wesley Snipes. I was expecting more martial arts or something. I don't know. <laughs> but um, rewatching it for this podcast and then Undisputed 3 that I'm doing with Vice Victus, uh, mm. I was absolutely blown away by it this time. I really liked it. And, and one of the things that I really like is, yeah, it's not super deep, but I do think it's deeper than people give it credit for. And I really love now how, and I mentioned this because I've already recorded with Vice uh, listeners. There's a little teaser for you. Um, <laughs> I mention, or he mentions this and I agree that it's unapologetic in wearing its blackness on its sleeve. And, and I am not qualified to address that. I will just tell people, listen to Vice. <laughs> but I really did notice that and really did appreciate that, that this is, you know, a movie that is, it has its its antecedents in 70s black exploitation. It very mm. much feels like a 70s movie, but with a 19, you know, 2003 or 2002 sheen to it. Um, mm -hmm. I, I was also amused because the day before I watched it, I had rewatched Rowdy Harrington's Gladiator, which also has John <laughs> Cena. So apparently John Cena, that, that's his thing. He's just the uh, a secondary character in boxing movies. <laughs> that was the John Cena era of the rat tail, was it not? Yep, it was. Yeah, it was. I remember that era. Yeah. Yep. He was, uh, he had his one big shot. I don't know if you remember, there was a, uh, I want to say it was Jerry Bruckheimer that produced a TV show called UC Undercover. And yeah. uh, he was the star of that. That was like his one big shot. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I, I think Undisputed is, is, is kind of an underappreciated film. And uh, I hope that people listening will check it out, even though it doesn't have Adkins, it doesn't have Michael Jai White. I mean, it does have Wesley Snipes and Ving Rhames. I don't know why you would need more motivation to watch a movie than those two guys. Um, and they fight about how you would think they do yeah. in the movie. Yeah. Uh, Rhames is like this tank, this lumbering beast. And the idea is that if he hits you, 
you're probably not going to want to keep moving because it's going to put you down. Whereas Snipes is a little bit more finesse, a little more of the uh, the technician and whatnot, a little uh, a little more graceful and whatnot. And it's nice to see them fight each other. I think the choreography is good for. I mean, again, you know, we're talking about uh, a genre of movie where Rocky is is our gold standard, really. So it's it, like you had pointed out earlier, it's is pretty fantastical. It's not real life. It's not realistic. It's it's got to be crowd pleasing for a movie. So they're going to be able to take hits that they can't hit and it's or they can't take. And I just I, I really think it's done well in Undisputed. I like the way that that Hill's level of expertise and the, the way he executes those kinds of things and the way he knows how to film it. Again, aside from my little quibble, some of the stuff outside the cage, I think it's presented well. And I think that the actors are athletic and physical enough that they sell it really well. Yeah, I mean, you know, like you said, we are of a, a similar vintage. You're 45, I'm 44. Uh, it's hard not to think of Tyson and Holyfield when you're watching this, right? Like, because Tyson was, that was Tyson's thing, right? If you got hit by Tyson, you you went down. And then Holyfield was a bit more of a technician, a bit more uh, stealthy. And uh, it it works because it would be ridiculous, as we're going to talk about in the next movie, it would be a bit <laughs> ridiculous for these guys to just kind of go toe-to-toe with the same style because they don't look alike, they're not built alike. Uh, Snipes is giving quite a bit of weight to Bing, Bing Rames, and they, they play into that. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, anything else you want to add about the, the first Undisputed? Uh, just that it kicks ass. And if you ain't seen it, you should. Yep. That's a strong recommendation from both of us. (laughs) So what were your thoughts when you found out during the heyday of DTV sequels, they were making a sequel to undisputed without snipes or reigns? What did you think? I'm going to be a hundred percent honest with you here, Mike. My initial reaction was, so that's a thing that happened. And I wasn't into it at all, at all. At the time, I I had come across a couple of DTV flicks that I enjoyed. I did not hate them, but I would be lying. And, and I was wrong. But again, I don't think that they were quite there yet. Um, I would not have put them up there with even just the low-budget theatrically released movies, the, the lower-budget uh, less uh, ambitious, shall we say, theatrical, low-budget movies, or even stuff like, you know, um, The Perfect Weapon or what have you, which I love, by the way. Um, the Perfect Weapon is why the, 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 the martial arts that I have studied, the martial arts I do know a bit of, I am in no way, shape, or form anything remotely resembling an expert or even a fucking brown belt, uh, but I do know some I have studied some Kenpo because of the, the perfect weapon. Um, I was not into it. I was not into it at all, really. And I knew Michael uh, Jai White a little bit. And I was like, really? That dude's playing the Ving Rhames part? Okay. I did. I never heard of Atkins. I hadn't seen The Shepherd at that point or anything. Um, I didn't. I don't know if it was before or after that. It wasn't until a recent reviewing, a rewatching of Unleashed that I realized that Scott Atkins is in that, in the pool fight scene. Yep, for like a minute. You barely yeah. even see his face. But it was rad to see him. I was like, holy fuck, that's Scott Atkins. I flipped out. 
Um, so he gets to fight Jet Li, even if it's just for a couple seconds. Oh my god. Um, but yeah, I was kind of like, all right, whatever, you know. And I kind of, I'll be honest, I kind of wrote it off. And then I started to pay attention to a lot of things that people were saying. And I'll give a lot of credit to the outlaw film critic Vern for taking a lot of the uh, taking a lot of the punches for us by getting down in there and digging out the gems of the burgeoning DTV uh, revolution as, as it was. And it wasn't until I saw Undisputed 3 that I went, oh, wait, I've been fucking up and I've been missing out. And I went back and I watched Universal Soldier Regeneration. Killed me. Or I think, yeah, no, I, that, that is the order I went in. And then I went back and watched Undisputed 2. Killed me. I was so angry at myself for not watching it. I understood why I hadn't. You know, I didn't think I was necessarily wrong because, you know, we didn't have... I didn't know what Isaac Florentine could do. I hadn't really been exposed to him. Something even like the tournament uh, that Scott Mann did with Ving Rhames and Scott Adkins in a small part, Kelly Who. I love that movie. And that was one of the first things I saw Scott Adkins in too. That was after Undisputed uh, 3. I was like, that's that guy. Because I already recognized him. I was already beginning to recognize him. Um, John Hyams had not come out with universe. I think universal soldier regenerations when I really realized, holy shit, there's something happening here that I missed. There's something really starting to happen here. And it's been, it's a few movies in now. And I think it's got the opportunity to really, some of these, I think are going to start outshining the big budget action movies in terms of what they can provide for a real fan of action. And it, and that's what ended up happening, I think. Um, it was amazing. And going back and seeing Undisputed 2, and and it's, it still is kind of funny to me that Michael J. White is playing <laughs> George, uh, the Iceman Chambers, um, and get to see him like start off doing more of uh, a boxing style of fighting and then he's going to learn a little bit about kicking and then by the end he can you know i understand you can't let michael really go completely nuts with all that he knows playing that character you're not going to see him doing the kind of stuff he did in like blood and bone or anything like that but yeah i i did kick myself i'll admit it i understood why i had skipped it i understood my my reticence to it my whole sense of hesitation, not wanting to get into it, being like, oh, you know, but I mean, that's, I think that happens to a lot of people. That happened to me with Hannibal. You know, when Hannibal comes out, you're like, oh, okay, that's going to suck. And it's roughly 1 million times better than it has any right to be. It should not be that good. But that's the, that's the joy of those kind of things when they shouldn't be that good. And they are. And something like Undisputed 2 a sequel to a movie made by one of my favorite directors starring Wesley Snipes, one of my dudes. It's going directly to video with people I, you know, a guy I kind of know and everyone else I never heard of, not counting Ben Cross. I mean, Ben Cross has been around, but I mean, he ain't out there doing roundhouse spin kicks either. So yeah, I, 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 I do regret that. Um, 
sleeping on it the way I did, but it did kick my ass the first time I saw it. And I've seen it a number of times since. And yeah, it's great. I do like Undisputed 3 better, I must admit. That's my favorite of the movies. And it might be because Boyka comes into his own as the lead. He's the, you know, the main character of that one. And that's the one that really turned me on to Scott Adkins and and just like, holy shit, I'm going to watch this guy's movies for the rest of my life. That That was that one. And I will stop battling that. No, you're good. You're good. Because cause a couple things uh, is, yeah, I mean, the problem, uh, first of all, I'm going to say I agree with you on Undisputed 3. That is an all-timer. I consider that <laughs> up there with Enter the Dragon and Bloodsport. Mm-hmm. I think that mm-hmm. is a, that is a, an absolute all-time great fight film. This one doesn't quite reach that level, but it still is fucking terrific. And can I can I just interject to say that I think maybe what might what might make it more to us it has to do with the other two movies you mentioned. Undisputed 3 is a tournament film. Yeah, and that definitely is part of it. I also think that you know and admittedly they all this is what I love about this series because they all work together because at least for the first three, you get the antagonist becoming the protagonist and then the antagonist becoming the protagonist. And I love one of the things because I had seen Undisputed 2. I saw it when it came out because I was a big Michael Jai White fan because <laughs> yeah. I remembered Universal Soldier of the Return, which is a movie that I am far more favorable to than a lot of other people. But his fight with Van yeah. Damme in that... He's just a badass in that. So true. I checked this out, and then, of course, I was blown away by this dude who, at the time, I thought I was stunned when I looked him up on IMDb and found out he was not Russian. He's some lad from <laughs> Birmingham, right? And yeah. uh, and uh, so I was super pumped for Undisputed 3 when that came out. And part of what I love about it is the... The well, I mean, I, I I've said this before. Calling it redemption is just such a perfect subtitle because the redemption of Boyka, the journey to honor uh, of Yuri Boyka in that movie is just that just fills my action, love, and heart with glee. Uh, mm-hmm. But also, the other thing I was going to say is, you know, one of the things that I think a lot of people, one of the reasons I think a lot of people slept on Undisputed too is this was the height of the eight millimeter twos and the roadhouse twos and the net 2.0 and uh hollow man two what hollow man two even fucking walking tall got direct to video sequels and it's Mm -hmm. like there's these echoes too yeah all of that stuff there was there was a glut and they were almost uniformly bad to unwatchable (laughs) you know and uh and so the idea that this would be anything different, uh, there's no reason why you would have thought it was. And I will never forget renting it and watching it, mostly for Michael Jai White, and then seeing that first fight with Boyka, where he does that, you know, he runs up the dude's chest and does that front kick off of his chest. And I was mm-hmm. just like, what am, I mean, literally, that was when I coined my nickname for him, the human special effect, right? Like just <laughs> just 
how is and then to find out that it wasn't there's no wires that's just scott doing it on his own Mm -hmm. because jj perry basically said hey uh this would look cool do you think you can do it and scott's basically like i don't know let's try and they (laughs) do it and it's like you literally just revolutionized action cinema because two very brilliant well three counting isaac three very brilliant people all got together and went, fuck it. Let's see if we can do it, you know? And that just, that's what I love about Florentine and Adkins and Michael Jai White, because we are going to talk just very briefly when we get to the recommendation section, because I think we're both going to highly recommend blood and bone as a stone cold, modern action masterpiece. Like that movie <laughs> that movie is incredible. Um and so it is one of those things that it's just I don't blame you for sleeping on this one. Why would you know otherwise? Uh and I love that you shouted out Vern, uh potential future guest on this show, uh, assuming everything comes together, outlaw Vern. Uh he has championed these movies his entire career. And he he was one of the biggest voices for Undisputed 3. He was one of the biggest voices for Universal Soldier Regeneration. Um, Mm -hmm. And honestly, I don't know that these movies necessarily get the accolades they do or people watching them that they do without him, you know. Uh, I think he did, because of the audience that he had, it, it gave them a big bump, which then pushed them forward to other further bumps. It's like he's a big branch in the tree. You know what I'm saying? There's a lot, there's a lot that happened after him, but he's, he started a lot of it. I think I know he did with me. I know he did with me. And then of course, once that happens with any individual, I started showing all this shit to all of my friends and uh, you know, uh, younger relatives and cousins and all that stuff. And I know that they did the same with their friends and other of their, you know, it just, and it just grows and that's how it goes. That's the beauty of it. That's how these things get shared and and take on that life and i think i really do think he's a large he's a large fork in the road for a lot of it i think i think he's i think he's a sign on the side of the road anyway like you got to put up a little Vern did this here boom plant that shit well and he's somebody that i personally have to give credit to because what i try and do on this show is treat action movies, not just Adkins movies, but action movies like the legitimate forms of cinema that they are. You know, there's mm-hmm. there's so much good writing about horror movies, treating horror movies with the reverence and respect they reserve and not just putting them in the, you know, the genre dumpster. Mm-hmm. But I feel like action movies don't get there, there's definitely people out there. You know, my friend Lee at Film Combat Syndicate or Yoan at Action Elite. There's there's definitely people that are writing about this stuff, but not at the same level that horror is. And Vern was one of the first ones to really, I feel like, treat these movies with the respect that they deserve, to treat them sure. like real movies. And, um, and, and I will always tip my hat to him for that. Yeah. And I think he's done a large part to put that conversation out there. Um, And I think, I think it does need to go a little farther for horror too. Not to say that it's a, you know, this one is is just as bad or this one needs help too. I think action really 
does deserve to be taken more seriously. And, and I think horror does too, because you'll see the same thing. You know, there's a lot of parallels between them because of genre and whatnot. But um, every once in a while, you'll see them get a little critical acclaim because they just, it just can't be denied. But even so, when they get that critical acclaim, you're going to have people who just can't accept that an action movie is that good at also telling a story or portraying a, or, or painting uh, a picture of a time and place or creating a character or having good acting in it or what have you. Uh, the same with horror. I remember when uh, it came out, there was a huge argument about whether or not it was a horror movie, which is the dumbest fucking conversation that anyone can have about that movie. But what it really came down to was people, what you realize people were saying, I, I have a hard time classifying this as horror because it's too good. I think it's too good of a movie. Therefore, it can't really be horror because I inherently think of horror as only so much. It, it only goes so high in quality. And they do the same thing with action movies, um, which is why you'll want to hear something like um, a drama thriller or whatever the fuck, you know, they try to reclassify it as something that it's really not. And you ask the people who make it and they'll tell you, no, we wanted to make an ass kicking action movie, but we also wanted to provide, you know, some substance to it, which is great. <laughs> yeah. I, I desperately do not want to have to start having conversations about elevated action movies. Oh God. But we kind of already did get that a little bit a few years ago because, uh, and again, Sorry, folks listening. Tangents are what I do on this show. It's okay. We'll get back to Undisputed. But uh, Lynn Ramsey's You Were Never Really Here, which mm. I'm sorry is a fucking action movie. Yes, she mm. does some really interesting stuff with it. And yeah. she, you know, you could argue it's almost an anti-action movie because she makes sure most of the action's off the screen. But the plot and everything else about it is a straight-up action movie. It's an action movie. And I, I, I saw people contorting themselves when that came out to try and call it anything but an action movie. Uh, and so it does, it does, that same argument does hit action. It's just... The thing with action, I think, sometimes is, you know, when you really have one blow big, it's blow up big. It's like John Wick and you just can't deny like you can't apply action thriller to John Wick. You know, John Wick no, is just but that's true. And and thank God for John Wick. Thank God for the guys at 8711, I think. And, you know, Stahelski and like. But but anyway, something like John Wick, they'll come at it shitting on it from a different angle and be like oh it has illusions of grandeur because it's trying to do world building and just just be an action movie just be you know the, just 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 embrace your b movie origins and don't try to do too much you know you you've you've bitten off more than you can chew you're reaching for the stars when you should be you know lounging in the gutter and all that horse shit and that makes me mad too, because it's like you you tell these people they should try to do a little more, and when they do, you immediately slam them right back into the box that you always want to keep them in, and you really don't want them to get out of that box because the box is easier for you. It's easier for you to contain. It's easier for you to understand. 
That's why you want to pretend that there's not good acting in these movies, that there's not good writing in these movies, that there's not good world building or production design or any other sense of craft that goes beyond what you think of as shitty little action movies. They are in your little box. And when they don't fit inside your preordained notions of what these movies should be, you don't know how to handle it. So you've got to talk shit about it in one way or another. And that just, it's, there's nothing that makes me angrier than not just the gatekeeping aspect of that, but people who think they're better than, than anything, really. Movies are movies, and different movies have different aims. Different movies are trying to do different things. Maybe John Wick isn't trying to do the same thing that, like, your movie, I don't know. And, and I don't want to, I don't even want to name a movie because I would probably like that movie because they're all trying to do different things. It just, it really makes me angry when people, when people do that, it, the snobbiness of, and you know, we see it on film, you know, what's called film Twitter. I don't want to fucking think of myself as film Twitter, because a lot of those people that would claim to be part of film Twitter are insufferable snobby assholes. And you were saying how you, you like that. I'm trying to be so positive. Those people, it, it, there's not enough room for the positivity with them. It has to, it has to check certain boxes before they will allow it to be positive. Uh, like something like atomic blonde is not good enough to come into their club. And it's like, fuck you. Atomic blonde kicks ass. That movie's awesome. And you know what? Just be all up your own ass if that's what you want to do i'm sorry i know you're do, fine. I get worked up about that no yeah well i do too that's why i'm you know i'm doing this show it, it's <laughs> yeah I, know. I, I love i love preaching to the choir <laughs> i love that you said a while back because i try and do the same thing you know you judge a movie on does it achieve what it sets out to do and if it does then it's a great movie undisputed two and undisputed three set out Classics. to do nothing more than be the best fucking fight films that they can be. And they are two of the best fight films of all time. And therefore, mm -hmm. to me, that makes them classics. That makes mm -hmm. them great movies. I, I'm, I'm sorry that, you know, some people might think that I throw the word, I, I get this on Letterboxd sometimes because I tend to rate movies that I really like. Like for me, Undisputed 3, I've rated that on Letterboxd. That's a five-star movie for me because you know what? Find me a better fucking fight movie. If you can, that one's also a five-star movie. <laughs> you know, Bloodsport, Enter the Dragon. Guess what? Those are also five-star movies. Those are all-time great movies. They're all on the same street. Yep. You're completely right. And so... It is one of those things where that's why I love this community that has sort of been built around. I call it action Twitter. It's a little subset of film Twitter where all we <laughs> do is talk about how much we love action movies and how mm -hmm. so many of them are underappreciated at the time. But they're very much, you know, to borrow. I've said this before to borrow the term from Brian Sauer and Elric Kane on Pure Cinema. They're handshake movies. They're they're the kind of movies where when you meet somebody, if if you see somebody in the store and they've got Undisputed Three in their hands, you're like, yeah, you and I, we might be cool, you know. And it's just mm -hmm. it's a, it's a handshake movie. Um, all right, I'm gonna. Bring us back to Undisputed 2 before everybody listening gets really mad. <laughs> and uh, 
I do want to say in response real quick to something you were saying about um, how you refer to things on Letterboxd like five star this and stuff that you really love. I've gotten a little bit of pushback myself in some Twitter conversations where I'll say this movie is a modern masterpiece or I think this is an unsung classic and you get people who go really is it is it though and it's like yeah it is you know for this kind of movie for what its aims are for what it's intending to achieve it does like a motherfucker and it's great it's great at doing it so yeah i think it is a classic so i mean you i i believe me i i know how that goes i have a lot of people who and they also try to tell you we can't really take some of your opinions seriously because you like too many things you you rate certain things too highly so it's it's almost like there's no real range where we can accurately pinpoint certain things as how they relate to how we see it it's just like oh there he is spouting off about some movie again that you know he's almost certainly overhyping it and it's not that good so i i believe me when i tell you i understand what you mean there well and i always my response to that is always right so when i rate a movie like Ava, the Tate Taylor Ava, when I rate that one star, if you know that I rate things like typically no lower than three stars, if I rate Ava one star, then you know I really fucking hated that movie. <laughs> like, like that's the opinion you take seriously is, oh shit. My dad always used to do that. He'd always have me filter action movies because he always knew that I was a big action guy. And so it's like, if I didn't like it, he was like, there's no way I'm going to like it. But if I did like it, then he's like, okay, then maybe I'll like it. But he always <laughs> knew that a movie, an action movie that I didn't like probably wasn't worth watching. Um, yeah. I get a lot of people who, when I say, oh, you know, I hated this or I really didn't like it, people go, oh my God, you almost never say anything bad about anything. And you're, you know, just even two tweets about how much you hated this thing. I kind of want to see it now because how bad must it be? And it's like, no, you don't understand. You may love it. It may work for you. We're all different. It did not work for me clearly at all. Um, but I find it funny that that's people's reactions either. Oh God, that must be such shit or, Oh my God, that must be so bad. I must see it. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. All right, I'm going to start trying to wind. We've been going for about an hour. I'm going to start trying to wind us down here. Uh, we've barely <laughs> talked about Undisputed 2, so let's talk really quick. Uh, tell me your favorite things about Undisputed 2. Wow. Um, obviously, first and foremost, the Adkins. And, and yeah, just, uh, you know, a little bit underneath him, Michael, Michael Jai White, because he's the shit. Um, but, yeah, well, when I first saw it, and even now, it... Michael J. White is such a, such a specimen. You know what I'm saying? Like that dude is just like, he's a beast. Um, and it's amazing to watch him do stuff. And like you said, blood and bone. Oh my God. Holy fuck. But watching Scott Adkins move in that thing. And Scott Adkins is so interesting. And, and one of my favorite things, not just about Undisputed 2, but any Scott Adkins movie is uh, not just the ones where, you know, more recently where he's been doing, they have less fighting in them so he can actually act and, and show people who don't know what a, a high quality actor he actually is. 
And I don't think he gets enough credit for that. You mentioned that it was a shock to find out he wasn't Russian. His accent work is great, I think, in the different things he's done. Um, but even in the stuff like Legacy of Lies, which has that one absolutely killer fight about 30 to 45 minutes into it, he's always going to do what Scott Adkins does, and which I saw in Undisputed 3 and then uh, Ninja and Undisputed 2. When I was first learning just the sort of talent and skill and passion and drive that we were dealing with is that he never phones it in. And it's like, it, it kind of does call back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of action movies where people are, they're putting in the work and they're all trying to make the best fight movie that they can every time out you can just see and feel scott is just there saying how can we make this better how can we make this the best it possibly can be someone asking him hey can you do this move you know i don't know if i can but we're about to find out if i can because if i can wouldn't that make the movie awesome I think a lot of his moves in stuff like Undisputed 2, his amazing choreography, and just not just the stellar martial artist that he is, but just being a phenomenal athlete, the things he's able to do with his body. Not just the fact that, you know, the things you see him do, not just in the movies, but when you're watching him train and his YouTube videos and stuff, and you think, holy fuck, I never want someone to hit me like that because that's going to fucking hurt so bad his martial arts skill is just off the charts, but his work ethic, I think, and it's not something, it's something that comes through in, in a sense of an overall feeling. It doesn't come through like it's sweaty, like he's trying too hard. Scott is not a try hard. He just gets out there and does it. He's like, okay, I'm going to do the work. I'm going to put it in. So that way, when it comes time, I can execute at this high level that I have set for myself, the standards that I believe everything should be worked at and executed at and it comes through in the movie when you see him same thing with michael j white you can't do that shit unless you're at the top of your game and watching the two of them like you said earlier the dance watching them go back and forth and it's movie fighting so you know it's choreographed and they're not fully it's not 100 full contact but i'm sure they're tapping each other here and there and maybe more in a little bit of a tap but it's all just so perfectly done and you got a great uh, a director with a great eye for that kind of thing, like Isaac Florentine, who does come from that kind of background. So he knows you've got all in JJ Perry getting in there and choreo choreographing it all. Um, great stunt coordinator. Uh, just it, it, they're the best at what they do. And something like Undisputed 2, which to a lot of people, unfortunately, your, your average everyday motherfucker is just going to be like, Oh, it's just a movie where people beat each other up. And it's like at the very highest level that humans can, thank you. That's what it's about. And it's amazing. It's utterly amazing. Undisputed 2 scratched that itch for me. It makes me want to get up and cheer. Uh, all the best of them do. And Scott Adkins movies, by and large, do that. That's why he's one of the best who's ever done it. Um, and I'm getting, I'm doing the, the, the wider range thing. Let me go ahead and bring it in a little more. Um, 
I really like in terms of the story, the way that they have to kind of put George in his place a little bit. And, you know, he's not going to be like the greatest guy ever, but he learns a little bit of humility. And that's always a good arc for a character to go through. You always want to see him do that. You always want to see him grow. You even get a little bit of that uh, with Boyka. And that I think leads through to Undisputed 3. Boyka is still pretty much an asshole in part three but he's like he's more likable and especially with the great chemistry and rapport he has with turbo that character another thing we always love to see in our action movies kind of a little buddy uh element thrown in there um it's he's a little more humanized but that starts i think to me with part two where he wants to do it with honor like he's presented as this unrepentant asshole you know who's just the most arrogant prick in the world and all he cares about is making sure that everyone understands what he already knows which is that he is the most complete fighter in the world when he finds out that one of his dudes was cheating on his behalf he straight up ends the son of a bitch right then and there because that's not what he's about you know he he believes he can beat the other guy fair and square because he honestly believes he is that much of a badass but he's not going to go about it in another way. And I think that is so important, even though he is the villain of part two. I think that's so important to the story, especially going forward, when you have a little bit of that to build on, where you understand that he, he's he got that honor, that there's a base of that inside him, you know? Yeah, I mean, a cartoonish villain is just boring, right? Like, a cartoonish mm-hmm. evil villain is just boring. They've got to have... I mean, and that harkens back to, you know, the best of the old sort of kung fu movies and, and stuff, where or, or John Woo movies in particular. You know, he always had... He always had the villains hard boiled. It's a perfect example. You got Anthony Wong, oh. who's just unrepentantly evil. But then you've got Mad Dog, who's mm-hmm. his right hand man, but is also a he's a killer. But he's he's a man of honor. Mm-hmm. You know, he won't kill mm-hmm. the hospital patients. He won't no. you know, and and Boyka's very much in that vein of like you said, he is the most complete fighter in the world, and he doesn't need fucking tricks. To win, you know, and, and so it's like he's it's what makes him fascinating. And it's why I think people not just because Scott Adkins was so cool, but I think mm-hmm. Boyka really tapped into something that people can appreciate in the idea of, well, maybe if his life didn't suck, he might be in a different such he and George might be reversed or, or, yeah. or you know, whatever. So. It was very smart on their part to give him that sense of honor because it made him a much more interesting character. Totally. And I think that Scott, Scott's inherent charisma, uh, you know, he's just a magnetic performer. Uh, He's the kind of guy that when he comes on screen inside, you're kind of like, what's that dude up to? Let me watch what he's doing. You know, he just kind of draws your eye. You know, he's just, he's got that charisma of a born performer um they could have coasted on just that because a lot of a lot of movies do not just action movies but ones where the antagonist or the outright villain is just interesting because of the person playing them and they they are very watchable because of that so they don't really try to give them 
anything deeper. They know that they can coast on that. And, you know, hey, that'll just make it easier for the rest of us. But I, I do appreciate it, like you said, when they when they do the work, when they put in the extra little touches, when they when they flesh out a character more and they, and they didn't have to do it, you know, but they did. And that's what, that's one of the little touches that makes the movie what it is, which makes it better. Yep, absolutely. And he, and he plays so well with white. They play off together so well. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and I do, I do, I feel like, uh, you know, we could probably talk about Michael Jai White as long <laughs> as we talk about Atkins, but just the scene, I had to make a gif of it. The scene when he's talking to the guys and he's like, go fuck yourselves. <laughs> um, he's just, he's so good in this and he's equally as charismatic as Adkins mm-hmm. is. Um, and so just having the two of them together and we get that replicated in, in three when Marco's Aurora is equally as charismatic as the villain. And yeah, um, you know, he doesn't have the sense of honor. And so it makes him a nice contrast to Boyka because now we've got Boyka being the guy that, that is taking the high road and, and Marcos Roar is not. It's one of the things I like, again, I love about this series is I think all four movies play well as a true series. There, there's a through line of theme and and sort of philosophy through all four movies that you can trace all the way back from Walter Hills to to you know Undisputed Four, uh, and that's why I think the series is really terrific. Yeah, I I can't agree more. What you had mentioned earlier, the way that the series had been progressing, and I would never trade anything for Boyka Undisputed. I love that they kept him as the main character. But part of me still wants them to figure out a way how to make uh, a side movie where uh, Marco Zoror's character is now the lead in the in, in a movie. Yeah, I agree with you. Know? you. I I really had hopes for that that maybe they would split them into two movies and we'd get a Boyka <laughs> series, and then we could get you know the Undisputed series kind of carrying the same thing if the antagonist mm-hmm. becomes the protagonist. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we did not we did not get did that not. because Boyka just proved to be too damn popular. Damn you, Scott. I, and, <laughs> I mean, and, and I, I, I am mad at it. I'm not going to complain uh, just because I want to see a movie where Markers of War would go would follow that arc uh, is one thing. But I, I dig Undisputed for I, I think Boyka Undisputed is is a good fucking time. I, I wouldn't want to trade it. So no, 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 it's. That's the curse of uh, of having a character that resonates with people, I suppose. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, all right, so you and I both are very positive when we come to talking about movies, but I'm not doing justice to it if I don't ask. Any low points? Any things about the movie that doesn't really work for you? Um, I don't know about doesn't work for me. I mean, cause it all, it's all of a piece. I mean, there's, there's the highlights and then there's the stuff that's a bit more typical of a movie of, because I mean, I hate to say it and I don't mind working in formula because I mean, that's one of the reasons why these movies are successful in the way they are is you're going to hit the beats. It's just, how do you hit them? Um, I, I think it was, Zemeckis, who, who was making a uh, 
and sorry to, I promise this, this is relevant. Um, Zemeckis was asked about what lies beneath when he was making that, that uh, Hitchcock thing he did uh, with uh, Harrison Ford and Michelle Pfeiffer. And they, and he said, look, when you work in horror, it's kind of like making a pasta dish, like spaghetti or something. There's going to be ingredients that are just necessary to the dish, dish you're making. Otherwise, you're not making that dish. There's going to be ingredients you have to have in it. The question is, how are those ingredients used? And what does the dish taste like when it's all put together? I think that applies to all different kinds of storytelling and movie making. Um, and in an action movie like this, something like the older, the old guy prisoner being the one to help uh, Chambers with uh, the different aspect of his training, learning how to use his legs and shit like that. I mean, it's like, yeah, when that started happening, and even when I was rewatching it recently, I was like, oh, that's right. That's how they did that. Um, it, it's it's a bit familiar, a bit rote, a bit formula, but I think they did it about as well as a movie like that can do. It's like, you got to get him there somehow, you know, and using a character like that is very much in the vein of these kinds of movies and, oh, the older prisoner who has the wisdom that we need to get, you know, it's a video game thing to get to the this is going to give you what you need to get to the next level kind of thing. Yeah. Right. It's a show. It's a shonen manga thing, right? You gotta, you exactly. get, you, you get beat by the villain and you got to power up and, and learn a new mm -hmm. skill. Exactly. And so, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that's a low point for me. It's something that, that as some, as a person who not just watches the movies and I don't mean this when I say things like this, it always, I always feel like I sound like an asshole, but you watch enough movies and you, you pay enough attention to storytelling because you love it and because you want to know how these things work and you want to know how stories are told and you want to know why certain ones do work and why other ones don't. You begin to, to recognize the puzzle pieces as they're slotted in as you're going along, right? So something like that character, uh, that the person who needs to get you to the next level, it's going to kind of stand out, but there's no way... Very rarely can a movie just work so perfectly and completely involve you where you forget that you're really being told a story and you're just experiencing it as it washes over you. I mean, that's those are for the very, very, very special ones. And I don't mean that Undisputed 2 isn't special, but it's special for reasons that go above and beyond the typical building blocks of making sure a movie like this works the way it's supposed to because those things are essential those are ingredients you need for this dish that old man uh prisoner character i forget his name but i know you know who i'm talking about and anyone yeah. who's seen the movie will know who i'm talking about yeah and and it is helped he's played uh by eli danker who was also in special forces and he i think he does a pretty terrific job for a role where he's not given you know, a ton to work with other than basically he's brushing Mr. Miyagi, you know, <laughs> and and so he's he's I think he does a pretty good job given that. But you're right. That's a very standard one for me. The thing that I think doesn't work well, uh, very well at all is Ben Cross's character. I, I he's clearly yeah. there because at that point, Adkins and White weren't big enough names to sell the movie. He's former Academy Award nominee Ben Cross. They get to put him in there. Uh, but his character really, I feel like, adds nothing to the movie because it's not even really that he he doesn't seem to inspire any change in Chambers 
as much as the other prisoners when they give him, you know, they George is out there and he's being they do his forced, Spartacus moment. Well, yeah, they do the Spartacus moment. They give him the coats and stuff like that. It's like uh, Ben Cross's character really just doesn't add much to the role. And, and for me, because, uh, you know, for younger viewers, that may not be that big of a deal. But for me, it's like, well, he's the fucking chariots of fire guy. So he's like distracting <laughs> to me in the movie without actually doing much in the movie. I, I think he's, and it's not really a fault of his performance. I think he performs at will, yeah, but I, he does what he's asked to do probably better than a lot of people would have done it. Because he's been crossed and he's a professional. He's going to show up and he's going to do his job the best he can. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, you see it, it's like, fucking Ben Cross? What? And, and just narratively, I just don't think he brings much to the story that they couldn't have done with either a less well-known actor or somehow incorporating Eli Danker into the movie. You know, because he really doesn't become Russian Mr. Miyagi until we've only got about 30 minutes left in the movie. And, uh, and so I, I could have actually stood a little more time with him, to be honest with you, and a little less time with Ben Cross's character. I, I agree. I mean, that's the whole, the character is there really to serve a plot point and kind of put a hat on it. But like, like you said, I mean, he only moves George forward so much and you could have done it in another way and maybe just written him out of the movie entirely and just had the prisoners provide that for the character. Yeah. Cause I mean, I actually think the Spartacus moment is way more moving than anything that happens with Ben Cross. The, uh, that, you know, as much as it was obviously, I was even when I was rewatching it with my wife and that happened, we both went, I am a Spartacus. I am a Spartacus. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But it works. It's impossible it, not to. It works in the movie, I think. It works. Yeah. It works pretty great in the movie. Um, I, I agree. You know, these are nitpicks. I mean, folks, there's no question. I, I'm just going to ask you right now, AJ, I already know what your answer is. Are you going to recommend people listening if they haven't seen it? Check out Undisputed 2. Run, do not walk. Do what you can, however you can. Make it happen, Captain. Watch Undisputed 2. If you enjoy uh, just watching, you know, like uh, Mike was saying earlier, a good fight flick. It's a a fight flick extraordinaire. You're not going to see him any better, period. You're just not. It's as good as this kind of movie gets, and... For those of us who are fans of it, it's one of our favorites. So yes, if you if you trust our opinions at all, get to it, please, please do it, do it. I'm gonna second everything you just said. Uh, check this one out. It's uh, I mean I can't imagine that you you're an Adkins fan and haven't seen this one yet, but I don't know maybe you found this podcast because you're like who's this Scott Adkins guy and why did some crazy mm-hmm. guy in Utah make a podcast about him, <laughs> um, you know? But because uh, he's awesome, Mike. <laughs> yeah, that he is. Check this one out. All right, man. Uh, give me two uh, other Adkins recommendations that aren't. Give me give me two sort of offbeat. Or maybe underseen Adkins Rex. All right, all right. The first I'm going to throw out there is probably my favorite, um, and that is Savage Dog. 
I don't know what it is about Savage Dog other than that it kicks my ass and I think it's fucking awesome to, you know, speak critically here. Um, a lot of people go with Undisputed 2. A lot of people go with Undisputed 3. I get that. I totally do. Uh, one of the Ninja movies, which I think I'm going to get to in a second. Um, Savage Dog, just, I, I like the story. I like the simplicity of it. I like that it's got Keith motherfucking David in it. I love that it's so brutal in moments where you go, oh, this is that kind of party. Okay. Um, there's a thing in, that happens in the movie that if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. You watch it and you go, that's that's not a thing I've ever seen done in a movie before by that character. I don't think. Awesome. Awesome. I'm all in on it. Um I really like the way Jesse Johnson, Jesse V. Johnson, excuse me, let's call him by his name. Uh, the way he gets down, that was the first, I'm almost positive that was the first movie I ever saw that he'd done with Adkins. I don't think I'd seen the others at that time. I just, it, I, I love Savage Dog. I love that Scott is playing an Irishman as uh, someone who is almost completely Irish from my own self. Um, I love that he does the accent. So I, I love the character of Martin. I love that you got Zoror in it again and you get to see him be an asshole and fight Scott. Really, really awesome fight scene. Kung Lee is in it, who is excellent um, in his one fight scene because that little son of a bitch is like, a he's the savage dog. I'm sorry. I mean, I know that's that's bad pun, but I apologize for nothing. I just, I love savage dog. I love everything about it. It, I think it's great. I I don't know why, but every time I watch it, I just think this might be my favorite Scott Adkins movie. I think now Avengement might be the best movie he's made uh, that that's, you know, a full on Scott Adkins movie, a vehicle for him because Avengement's a great story and it's brutal as shit. It's different, but I mean, sorry, this is not about Avengement. I love Avengement, but I, I think Savage Dog may be my favorite scott adkins movie just all around everything about it um yeah clearly they weren't dealing with the budget that some other scott adkins movies had um it's a little a little more down and dirty uh they were playing from behind a little bit i think but i think that comes through in it i love its scrappy vibe and the spirit of it so that's one two i think is ninja shadow of a tear which i just think is just a mean mother fucking piece of martial arts madness i love it more every time i see it i love ninja i think that's a lot better than a lot of people give it credit for but ninja 2 i think just i like the story better i like the pace better i like the fights better um scott doesn't get to go full out the way he did in the first one and the whole ninja regalia um but i it ends with him and Kane Kasugi having just a fight for the ages, I think. Uh, I think there's a couple of fights in that that are, that are up there with anything Scott ever did uh, in any of Scott's movies. I love the energy of it. I love, I love how Florentine does his movies. I just, I'm always going to get excited about it. Like you and I were talking about on Twitter, um, even something like Close Range that is as simple as it is. I just, I love the energy of it. Same with the most recent one, Seized. Uh, I, I, I had a great goddamn time with Seized. 
Um, another one where you can tell they were kind of playing from behind a little bit, did not have the resources maybe that another Scott Atkins movie would have, but they may do with what they had and they gave you an entertaining time. And I'm sorry, I'm, I'm naming all these movies. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're, um, you're fine, man. And I love that you recommended both a JVJ joint and a Florentine joint, because I think they're kind of the two, the two halves of, of Adkins, because I think Florentine really pushes him. Not that Johnson's action isn't great too, but Florentine really pushes him as a, as a fighter Mm-hmm. And Johnson, Johnson is a great collaborator, I think, with, with Scott. Really pushes him as an actor. Really, yeah. really pushes him forward as an actor. Uh, you know, I think his best acting performances are almost, except for Boyka, I think his best acting performances are uniformly in Jesse D. Johnson movies. I would 100%, 100% believe, uh, believe. I would 100% agree, firstly, because of Avengement, because that's just such a specific and different character than anything Scott ever did. And then I love his work as French in the Debt Collector series, because he gets to be a little um, kind of like the smart ass, kind of like the acerbic, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not even supposed to be here today kind of vibe. Um, but you really get to see that he's funny. And the same thing with Accident Man. You know, it's a mean sense of humor, but it's fun. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, French is by far and away, I think, probably the closest to him as a personality. <laughs> and so so Jesse to be able to actually pull that out and make that entertaining and dynamic and, and all of that sort of stuff is, is really terrific. Um, all right. Give me a couple. I, I was going to ask you for Michael J. White Rex, but I'm just going to circumvent that and say a joint recommendation of Blood and Bone. And I would also throw in, I think you'd probably agree with this, Black Dynamite. If you're going to watch two Michael J. White movies, Blood and Bone and Black Dynamite are probably the two to watch. Definitely in terms of being able to understand the range of everything he's able to do, because he's Black Dynamite shows that he's more than just the big glowering badass who can just destroy a room full of dudes, which he certainly can with authority, but black dynamite is hilarious and just a quality movie, just such a great comedy and tribute to all those movies. Um, honorable mention, because if you were going to ask me to pick two black dynamite, I, I have a hard time disputing that. I can't, I can't argue with black dynamite. You can't fuck with that movie, but in terms of the action side, just pure action side of what, uh, Michael J. White does. I would also say Falcon Rising, which I think is very, 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 very satisfying for a fan like myself, at least. I, I think that one deserves a whole bunch more love. There's some great, great shit in Falcon Rising, and I really want a series. Choreography by the great Larnell Stovall in that oh one God. and co-starring the great Latif Crowder. So I am going to second uh, Falcon Rising. That one is also terrific. Mm-hmm. Um, Just one note about Michael J. White that I think is hilarious that you really see in Blood and Bone. It's one of my favorite things about him. And you see it in, in Falcon Rising as well. When he's fighting, he's so hyper competent at it. He almost looks bored sometimes. You know what I'm saying? He has a facial expression that looks like, come on, son. And then he just dismantles you. And it looks like he's like he, and I don't mean like robotic, like it's not hard, but it almost like it's effortless. Like it's just kind of like STEM in uh, Upgrade where it's just this 
free flowing like program where it's like I am gonna fucking rain down destruction upon your entire body system right now, and then you're done. Because it's so impressive to watch him do it, and he's got this expression like thinking about taking out my laundry later. I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna do that. Oh, here's his face. Let me stomp it. And you know, it's just so fucking cool. It is so cool. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And I, I am glad he doesn't make too many movies like that because, you know, okay, hear me out on this because I am in no way, shape, or form comparing Michael Jai White to Steven Seagal, especially later era Steven Seagal. <laughs> but, you know, that was one of the things with Seagal movies is he would do that. And for a while, it was a lot of fun. And then it was every movie was just that. And it just got boring. I love that White only does that every once in a while. Right. He just unleashes it in Blood and Bone or Falcon Rising. But, you know, I mean, he loses his first fight in this movie and he loses it pretty badly, you know. And, and so he's and he, he gets killed in Accident Man and he gets killed in Triple Threat. You know, he he's 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 a true team player. He is more than happy, in spite of the fact that he's an actual human giant. He is more than happy to take his beatings in service of the story. But then when you get something like Falcon Rising, it is really fun when they're just like, all right, let's just let you unleash hell for 97 minutes. And, <laughs> and, and, and you are right. Like, he just... And it's not a criticism. He looks no, bored. No. and But it's so delightful to watch him because even when he looks bored, he's so charismatic and he's so dynamic. That oh, it, yeah. I mean, I think it looks cool. And I think it's, it's a, a distinctive, specific choice on his part where he wants to – because I think he's, he's also another very, very underrated actor. I think Michael J. White – has a lot of talent as an actor, not just as a martial artist or as an on-screen fighter. Um, and I think that's a very distinctive choice on his part. So I think that's, I don't mean that as a, as a, a slam in any way, shape or form. Cause like you said, he, he, it is different in accident, man. And it's him and Ray Park getting their asses kicked by our boy, Scott Adkins in that first scene. Um, and of course, you know, in triple threat, it's, it's all our heroes. And just, to make one point about triple Theft that I think is awesome. How awesome is it that they understood that if you're going to have someone go up against as the ultimate villain, who's going to go up against Tony jaw, eco Uwes and tiger chin, who else would you believe other than Scott Adkins? You have to get Scott Adkins. I don't think a, a, an audience would buy anybody. We do with Scott Adkins. You think, Oh, okay. These guys might actually be in some trouble. Well, you know, and even though it's the three of them together, and I love, I love that 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 he manages to fight them all off basically until it ends up just him and Tony, and mm. then Tony basically goes full on Bach, and and that you know like <laughs> I know, and again, folks, we'll be talking about Triple Threat down the road, but I know I know some people were really disappointed with Triple Threat. I do not get that because I mm. thought the last fight in triple threat was just I, I really couldn't have asked for more I mean because anytime you put all those actors together the fight by definition has to be somewhat of a disappointment because it couldn't possibly ever live up to the fight that's in your head when yeah. you hear that fight's gonna happen but frankly I thought it was pretty terrific um, I think that's the problem that people had with it because it's it's not it's not the movie it's the expectations 
and expectations more than anything else is going to fuck your enjoyment of a movie in any kind of movie ever because uh, you're at that point you're watching the movie that you want to watch rather than the movie that is and you always got to watch the movie it is it's not fair to judge a movie that is against the movie you want it to be because they're not almost never going to be the same i think triple threat it's not the greatest fight movie ever made which again i think a lot of people sort of expected it was going to be like oh my god how can this not be one of the greatest action movies ever made it's a lot of fun and is a, a a really enjoyable action movie i would give it four out of five easy easy yeah yeah i i, I agree i i i think it's almost more of a miracle that we got yeah, a good movie because that that movie could have also with all those personalities yeah. and all those people that thing could have gone. You know, I think of some of the old Hong Kong movies where they teamed up all these actors like Fantasy Mission Force that are just borderline unwatchable. <laughs> you know, the fact that we got a, a movie that's as good as it is, uh, I think is a minor miracle in and of itself. Yeah, it's like, why are you going to bitch about getting a, a good fun movie? You know, it could have, and you're completely right. It could have been an unwatchable, just pile of shit. And it was not, not at all. Not at all. All right. Final thing I'm going to ask you, give me your, <laughs> give me your top three Walter Hill recommendations. We're going to bring it back full circle. Give me your oh, top three Walter oh, Hill recs. Oh, 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 this is rough. This is rough, man. Um, All right. All right. All right. Well, the first has got to be Extreme Prejudice because that's just, it, that really is just my favorite Walter Hill movie. Um, I think it just does what he does the best. Um, second, I think, is probably Southern Comfort. Uh, I think that is also underrated. I just, I fucking love Southern Comfort. And from there, man, uh, you know, part of me does want to say the driver. Part of me wants to say the warriors. But I think, shit. You know, another part of me wants to say forty-eight hours too. But man, I I gotta go with Streets of Fire. I gotta go with Streets of Fire because that. I always love it when you have a movie that could not have been made by anybody else, and that movie is that's pure unadulterated uncut walter hill and when you hear him talk about how it came to be and how he wrote it and and why he wrote it the way he did and that it's everything that he would have wanted in a movie when he was 15 i mean that sort of thing is so epically romantically and i don't mean in like the relationship sense i mean like just this swooning just beautiful oh my god that's awesome i I love it. And it's, it's just so unique and fun. And I mean, everyone, I think people should know about extreme prejudice because it's just a great action movie. It's a great men on a mission yet also uh, uh, old friends falling apart over a woman, but also they got this going on that guy. There's a lot going on there, but it's like action at the core. Um, Southern Comfort is just this almost unbearably tense and it's kind of a slasher movie in the swamp in a way, but it's like framed as an action thriller. It's just, it's, and it's got one of the greatest casts ever. Same thing with Extreme Prejudice. Both of those movies have a murderer's row of character actor greatness in them. Uh, if anyone listening has not seen Extreme Prejudice or Southern Comfort, just go take a look at the cast list. 
and uh, be fucking blown away. But Streets of Fire is just this mad concoction of, you know, um, what 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 did Walter Hill say about it? Walter Hill described it in the archetypal archetypical terms, um, archetypal terms. Um, Queen of the Hop gets kidnapped by the leader of the pack, and Soldier Boy has to come home to go save her. I mean, that's that's awesome. That's that's pure cinema storytelling to me, and the way that he executes it is on a level that I don't think a lot of people could execute it. I don't, you know. And again, I you know, people would not have made it that way. You could have a hundred directors take Walter Hill's script. Um, Hills and Gross's script and it would not have come out looking like that feeling like that being like that at all it's it's a one of a kind and it's fucking great I love it with everything that I am yeah so. <laughs> that that's that's mine too I second everything you said about Streets of Fire I love that movie more than life itself it is such <laughs> a unique creative beautiful piece of cinema that has never existed before and will never exist again and that Mm -hmm. fucking jim steinman's you know Mm -hmm. nowhere fast and tonight is what it means to be young and just everything Mm -hmm. about it is just such a special it's one of those movies that is really special when i see something like that you know and i saw it way back i've loved it since i was a kid i saw it in 1985 when i came out on vhs but mm. it's one of those movies where when you watch it uh you know the most recent one of this for me was uh anna and the apocalypse where oh, yeah. you can watch it and you can say i am truthfully seeing something that i've never seen before and when it your people are like you and me and we watch hundreds of movies a year Seeing something that you can say, I have truly never seen anything like this before, that's a really special fucking moment, and that's a really special fucking movie, and Streets of Fire is 100%. If you've never seen it before, folks, watch it. I promise you, you will say, I have never seen anything like this before. That's exactly right. There's never been a movie like it. No one would have ever thought to make a movie like it. Only Walter Hill would have thought to make a movie like it and he did and business wise and career wise it did kind of fuck him but the art is what matters because the art is here and we can watch it whenever we want and i implore anyone who hasn't seen it please just go give it a shot most people who see it a lot of people find themselves on its wavelength and just find something special it is not for everybody because it is so unique but for those who find themselves under its spell, it's going to be one that stays with you. It's going to be, it's just going to be a keeper. It's going to be a keeper. And the Shout Factory Blu-ray of it is <laughs> beautiful. So <laughs> it's well worth checking out. So, um, all right, AJ, thank you so much for joining me, man. <laughs> uh, thank you. Plug some shit. Where can people find you? Uh, I have um, a quite well. I have a, a decent handful of pieces on Daily Grindhouse. Um, great site, great writers over there. Uh, I was very, very lucky to get the opportunity to write for them and just kind of babble my own uh, personal brand of babble over there about shit that matters to me or stuff I like. And um, 
So I was lucky with that. Mostly these days, um, it's just me on Twitter. Uh, I guess my, uh, my handle is at AJ underscore McCready. Uh, that's me on Twitter. And I just, I babble a lot about movies and music and shit I like. Um, hopefully a lot less politics now because <laughs> I get pissed off about a lot of the stuff that was happening lately, but mostly what I love to talk about are the things that I love and the things that I love are movies and music and books and shows and just pop culture. And it's always going to be movies. It's always going to come back to movies. Um, you may not always agree with my taste, but I don't think you can, I don't think anybody would say he doesn't really love movies. I believe my love for movies is even for people who hate my opinions on movies. And there are more than a few. They understand that at least I'm coming from it honestly. And it is a pure love of movies. I, I, I don't know what I would do without them. And I really do appreciate you giving me the opportunity to be here, Mike. It's been a great time. I know you said we'd probably only do this for an hour and here. It's been just about over 90 minutes. <laughs> Yeah, I, I had a hunch that might happen. All right, folks, uh, I cannot encourage you highly enough to follow AJ on Twitter. He is one of my very favorite people. Uh, you will catch us shooting the shit every once in a while talking about action movies and stuff like that. Uh, we, give e we give each other a lot of virtual fist bumps because we think alike and we have a lot of the same opinions. Um, so please, if you don't... I, I He's got... 87 times the followers I do. So I'm sure you already follow him, but uh, if you don't, please make sure to check him out. And brother, thank you so much for joining me on this. This was a lot of fun. Hell yeah, it was man. Thanks so much for having me. Um, hopefully we can do it again. I understand. Cause I know this is such a cool idea and cool podcast that there's a lot of people who want to get in and uh, party with you on this specific subject. But if you ever want to have someone come back and, you know, babble about savage dog or triple threat or whatever you know i'm here and we've already got through most of it <laughs> maybe we can spend most of the hour or 90 minutes actually talking, talking about, about the movie, movie. yeah, yeah. Um, but if not hey like i said yeah. i understand just as long as we can keep talking about movies in whatever fashion we can uh we'll do that and besides i don't know about this being off the record or not but you were talking about unique movies like Anne in the apocalypse and streets of fire we need to talk about I don't, you may not like it. I don't know. A lot of people don't because it is so fucking unique. It's not for everybody. Boonraku. Do you know that movie? Oh, I know Boonraku. Are you kidding me? Mike Patton does the narration on that. And I ride <laughs> or die for Faith No More. Of course I know Boonraku. Uh, that is I, something I would love to do. It, it probably won't fit in this, but I will. Fi oh, I will no, 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 no. I, will, I just mean talk about it somewhere. Yeah. At some point. Yeah. I will figure out a way to uh, hook up a mic and record us talking about that for a couple of hours because that movie is bonkers. I love it. It's crazy pants yep. and it's the shit <laughs> absolutely man all right buddy have a good night okay. you too man thanks again take care and that will do it for this week's episode of adkins undisputed you can find the show anywhere you listen to podcasts you can find my work with the dana buckler show at linktree slash dana buckler show where we talk about all sorts of movies and almost none of them scott adkins related you can follow me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Hibachi Justice. You can follow the show on Twitter at Adkins Podcast and on Instagram at Adkins Undisputed. You can email me at the Adkins Undisputed Pod at gmail.com. 
I am very pleased to announce that in a joint venture with my boys at the Action Drunkies and Woovember, we've started the Action Undisputed Discord server, where y'all can come and hang with us and talk all sorts of action movies, what you love, just everything that we all wish we had a place to talk about this stuff. Reach out to us on Twitter for an invite. Next week, we're going to dive back into the world of Adkins and Florentine, and we get Scott's very first team up with Jean-Claude Van Damme, good friend and host of the F This Movie podcast, quite frankly, the podcast that is the reason you're listening to this right now. Patrick Bromley will be joining me to talk that one. So next time, make sure to bring your ears, your podcast app of choice, and your fucking champion, to Adkins Undisputed, the most complete Scott Adkins podcast in the world.